Episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Naveen Rizvi. Naveen is Maths Curriculum Advisor for United Learning, creating pupil and teacher resources for the existing Year 7 and Year 8 curriculum, with the resources being used across United Learning's 37 schools. Naveen has previously taught at Michaela and Great Yarmouth schools, both of which have been in the public eye over the last few years. Naveen has a keen interest in mathematics pedagogy and curriculum design, in particular with regard to direct instruction, atomization, and Siegfried Engelman. I have had the pleasure of hearing Naveen speak about her approaches to teaching many times and have always found what she has to say both fascinating and challenging. It is no surprise that she's become one of my most requested guests to get on the show. Now, I had a whole host of questions to ask Naveen, but like my interviews with Danny Quinn and Chris Bolton before her, we didn't get very far past the question, how do you plan a lesson? Fortunately, Naveen will be returning to the show to talk all things atomization and her favourite babe of all, Mr. Engelman. But don't be thinking there's not much substance to this episode because we covered the following things and much, much more besides. Naveen talks us through her career and what she learned in each of the schools she has worked in. She discusses her favourite failure and what she learned from it, which leads to a fascinating discussion about sharing ideas and approaches and social media as a whole. It certainly gave me plenty to think about, and I'm going to reflect on that in my takeaway at the end of the show. What does Naveen mean when she says the learning for pupils starts once they are tested? And then we dive into Naveen's approach to planning a sequence of lessons, which blew my mind. We have talked a lot about so-called scripted lessons on the podcast in the past, but here we hear about one in action. And I am absolutely delighted to say that the booklet Naveen talks about, which contains the worked examples and scripted dialogue, can be downloaded via the podcast show notes page, so you can essentially play along at home throughout the interview. Thanks so, so much for Naveen for sharing this. Now, I absolutely love this conversation. One of my favourite things about doing this show is the range of approaches of the guests who come on. Compare the way Naveen plans and delivers lessons to that described by Andrew Blair or Helen Hindle in previous um, episodes. They could not be more different, and I reflect on this in the takeaway at the end of the show. Oh, and have your pens and paper at the ready, because if you think of a question you would like to ask Naveen when she returns to the show, then just drop me an email via mrbartonmaths at gmail.com or tweet me at mrbartonmaths. Two quick plugs before we crack on. If you're listening to this episode in February or March, then it is very likely that the summer exams may be on your mind. And if you're listening in April or May, then it may well be full-blown panic stations. But fear not, because over at Diagnostic Questions HQ, we have a series of completely free, brand new maths 
SATs and GCSE revision quizzes to help you and your students prepare. They can be used in class, as one-off homeworks, or even as a complete revision scheme of work. Head over to diagnosticquestions.com forward slash revision 2019 to check out the questions and the quizzes. That's diagnosticquestions.com forward slash revision 2019. There'll be a link to that page in the show notes. And finally, if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of intelligent, engaged, and quite simply incredible listeners, then I am offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of this podcast. And that has been taken up by the likes of AQA, White Rose, Boss Maths, all the big names. If you want to be in that illustrious crew, then drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to discuss the packages available. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce Naveen Rizvi. Remember, if possible, download Naveen's booklet either to have a look at before our conversation or to follow along as we discuss it. Now, I recorded this interview before the birth of my lovely little son, Isaac. So if you think I sound incoherent and clueless in this interview, then things are only going to get worse once the sleep deprivation well and truly kicks in. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, Naveen. So we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Um, Okay, well, hi, Craig. And um, for me, it would have to be 11 and the powers of 11, because I think it's such an interesting number in the sense that you can teach powers 11 in terms of powers when the kids are really young when they're in primary school and then it transitioned beautifully to like pascal's triangle to binomial expansion um and then children can see that you know mathematics what you learn at school is a tiny microcosm of what there is to learn in the future and i think kids who either don't enjoy maths or aren't taught maths well or find maths hard to think maths ends as a subject in year 11 when they don't pursue it further on. But I think by showing kids moments of where mathematics is far larger than the course they study at school makes maths more exciting and more appealing. So for example, um, with my um, year eight, when I was at Michaela, I showed them how when you expand x plus one to the power of two to the power of three to the power of four to the power of five, the coefficients of the variables and the constant, the pattern followed, Pascal's triangle and I remember doing that and the kids just their minds being blown by <laughs> the beauty of mathematics it was like whoa something as simple as powers of 11 can cause this really cool triangle that's got this really cool pattern but then also their coefficients and constants of what we're learning of expandable brackets triple brackets um holding a bracket holding expression to the power of whatever number um and how that changes when you have x plus two or x plus three they were just so pumped and it made them realize that studying maths further on GCSE can be so exciting. Um, so for me, it's the powers of 11 and 11 itself. That's a, a lovely answer, that, Naveen. And I, I think it's, it's hit upon something something important there, that it's it's nice to, to show kids that, that maths doesn't stop when they do GCSE and give them a little sense of, of, of where it's going to go and, and that there's a purpose of learning these potentially kind of basic and, and dry skills of expanding brackets. And the purpose is it's going to unlock this wonderful world of mathematics that they're going to encounter later on. Yeah, that's an absolutely lovely answer, that, Naveen. Um, 
Question number two then, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? So this is a really hard question because I spent so much of my time realising the answer to question is not what I did as a student, but what I love to resource and create. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of my time was like, oh, what did I really enjoy about maths as a kid? Um, and I think for me, I think this is the answer that's been given before. It has to be calculus. Um, I just thought it was so beautiful seeing numbers drawn as lines, drawn as curves. Um, I remember teaching, I, te I do both tutoring with A-level, and whenever I teach calculus, I just have so much um, nostalgia <laughs> from being a child and learning it. And I remember I found calculus quite hard when I was learning it, and I put a lot of time and effort into not making that a hard topic anymore. So I think calculus would have to be the one, if I remember correctly, from being 18. Yeah, it's, it's a popular one. It, it does come up a fair bit. That, that's superb. I mean, and final speed dating question. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in maths education? So <laughs> what's really funny about this question is that whenever I've ever thought about leaving teaching and leaving education, I've always been incredibly stumped thinking, what on earth would I do instead? Um, I guess what I would do, which is a bit unusual, and it's, this is something that is very personal to me, is that I would love to travel around the world and interview really great people that do great things to improve the well-being of people who are less fortunate. So I would love to interview and raise awareness of NGOs, initiatives, charities, um, independent people who improve the quality of life for the poorest. It's quite a niche thing, but it's, um, I think it's so exciting to know that people in the world who genuinely improve the lives of others but they don't get a lot of recognition for their work or they are so humble and down to earth that they don't even want the recognition. So, for example, um, many, many years ago, well, not many years ago, a couple of years back, um, there's a Pakistani Muslim man who was in Pakistan and his name is Abdul Sadar Idi and he set up one of the most successful ambulance services for um, poor people in Pakistan. Um, so basically, if you are somebody who cannot afford to hire an ambulance, he had a company and ran the charity which sent out ambulances to take people from wherever they were to the hospital for completely no cost at all. Um, and he's a really humble down-to-earth guy when he passed away. It was such a, such a sad, sad moment because I had never heard of him until he died. Um, and when I found out more about him, I realized I wanted to know more about these people. So I'm not sure if it's a job description or if there's a job <laughs> but um, that's what I would love to do, raise awareness of great people people's work i like it and i like to think that's that's what i'm trying to do here naveen give the people who are, who are changing the world <laughs> these great people let's let's give them a voice fantastic answers okay naveen so um can you talk us through your career because you, you've had you've had a varied career it's a relatively short career in maths education but you, you've achieved loads and done lots of things so just just talk us through it start wherever you want maybe school university wherever you want and just just take us through to where you are today um okay cool so i studied politics, philosophy and economics at the University of Manchester and during my summer of my second year I started thinking about next steps career-wise. I loved PPE, it was really hard but I didn't want to continue further onto a master's level on the subject. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I have so much respect for anybody at the age of 20 who has, no, who has any idea of what they really want to do for the rest of their lives. I definitely did not have any idea what I wanted to do at the age of 20. So I applied to a bunch of different grad schemes and um, somebody who was a good friend of mine recommended Teach First and she said, 
you know, you've always spent your childhood tutoring cousins, your dad's friends, kids. Um, I tutored my brother for like four or five years. Um, I've always loved to do tutoring, so why not try teach first? So I was very lucky in the sense that in my third year, before I started university, my, my third year of university, I had a place on the Teach First program to do the two-year leadership development pro- program. And in preparation for Teach First, I wanted to get back into tutoring, but tutoring within schools. So I, I joined a charity called the Tutor Trust, which um, is an incredible charity based in Manchester, which basically recruits and trains university students to tutor people premium kids um, in disadvantaged schools. And this gave me the opportunity within my third year to go into schools and tutor one-to-one to start planning and creating resources to take kids from the point of not knowing something to knowing something. And I felt like that was really eye-opening because I actually was able to see what a school looks like on a daily basis. I was able to have conversations with teachers about how to plan my lessons better, about how to plan my sessions better. I learned how to actually behavior manage quite tricky kids. Um, I had one child who had serious anger issues and trying to deal with him was quite difficult, but I, it, it was the start of me developing and understanding having quite a warm and strict relationship with kids. So um, that prepared me for Teach First. And then in my first, so my first year of teaching, I joined Levenstein High School for Girls in South Manchester, where I was really lucky to meet some of the most incredible professional and intelligent teachers that I know today. Um, they're all also on Twitter, like Richard Deacon, Neil Turner, and Nahid Ali, and they just taught me so much about classroom presence and having excellent subject knowledge. Then after two years there, I wanted to try something else, see if there are schools out there that were a little bit different to where I was, but still doing great things. And then I came across Michaela Community School, and I spent two years there, and it, it literally transformed my teaching. I would not be the teacher that I am today if I hadn't been at that school for the short time that I was. Um, two years is a tiny amount of time, but I feel like those two years, I learned more than I did in, you know, one week at any other school, really. It t- taught me about classroom management skills. Um, I, <laughs> interestingly, taught science um, as well as maths um, in my first year at Michaela for one half term because we couldn't find a really good science teacher. And I don't know why on earth they thought it would be a great <laughs> one, but they did. Um, so I taught science and I it would not have been possible to teach science as well as I did because of the head of department, Olivia Dyer, who is head of science at Michaela. She is an extraordinary teacher. She is incredibly talented. She makes fantastic resources. All my resources were planned by her. So I just taught the resource and I would discuss questions with her in our meetings before I would teach. And then I transitioned fully to maths um, within my first year. And I was really blessed because I had Danny Quinn as my um, um, head of department. And being in her classroom taught me so much. I honestly am so well grateful and indebted to Danny because I wouldn't be who I am now. Um, she taught me about how asking thoughtful questions, how to guide people to develop a clear understanding of what's being taught. Um, and still today, like Danny's somebody who I would go to and ask questions for questions and answers and ask her to help me out if I um, needed help in any part of maths. So I did. Mika- I was at Michaela for two years, and then after that, I joined Inspiration Trust. And I started teaching at Great Yama Charter Academy um, purely because my family is actually based in Norfolk. So it was nice to be able to move home, but also because um, Barry Smith, who was deputy head at uh, 
um, Michaela Community School, became headmaster at Great Yamashata Academy. And he was like, hey, come and join me. Like, <laughs> we'll have such a great time. So um, I joined Charter and that one year changed the way I make resources now completely. Um, it's honestly the best school that I've ever worked at. I've never had more fun balanced with learning so much um, in my career than I did at Charter. Um, Barry and his team are incredibly kind and generous and welcoming um, teachers who allow you in your rooms at any time whenever you wish without with asking or without asking. Um, and more importantly, the team at Charter turned the school's results around to the point that they leapt from 30% to 58% just one year. So pupils achieving at least grade four and above. And it was a complete team effort. It was Barry's ability to take a school which was struggling, enforce really strict behavior, um, a behavior policy which was really consistently applied amongst teachers, teachers who were so overjoyed by be- that they were able to finally teach lessons because essentially even the teachers tried their best. Behavior was so bad and hard to manage that they really wouldn't be able to teach um, despite how hard they tried. And it's a really happy place. The kids are really happy. The kids are really grateful um, for how much they've achieved in just a short amount of time. And it's just a place full of love. And if you haven't seen the school, I would highly recommend it. It's on the beautiful beach of Great Yarmouth. Um, the kids are fantastic. The staff are really welcoming. Um, so I did that for a year and I was at Charter. But then I got offered my dream job, which was really hard because I was at Charter and having the time of my life. And then I got offered this incredible, incredible job with United Learning to be a curriculum advisor for mathematics. So what that really means is that my responsibility is to make resources for teachers and pupils for the existing United Learning Year 7 and Year 8 curriculum. So I basically get paid to make math resources, which in my small world is like living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even though I've only been teaching for five years, and I do realize I've got a long way to go and every year is always quite transformative in its own way. But I do recognize that I've always been quite lucky. I've gone from a really good placement school to a fantastic transformative school like Michaela to an equally transformative existing school that turned it around like Charter. Um, I have to also admit that where I've gone has been quite deliberate. I've always chosen very carefully where I've gone to next because I've always known that I want my career to be one where I've always learnt as much as I can from where I am but also I can give as much as I can. I can give the best version of myself where I am. So I won't apply somewhere where I feel like I can't do the best of my best of my ability or best of my job. Um, so it's been quite deliberate, but also I've been very lucky, right time, right place, knowing the right people as well. But um, that's just kind of where I am now. But I really wanted to also mention the kind of the turning point um, career-wise, um, which wholeheartedly I do think was responsible for who I am now, and that is my second school placement. So when you do um, teach first, you spend a week at a different school from your placement school, and that's called a second school placement. And I went to King Solomon Academy, where at the time um, Bruno Reddy, who was also a founding member of staff but also head of maths at the time, offered an opportunity for Teach First participants to go and do a second school placement there. And when I got to that school in April, I didn't realize how much I would learn um, within a space of a week in terms of how to plan your lessons better, how to make resources, how to prepare your worked examples. 
schools how to prepare, how to develop your pedagogy in a very sustainable manner. So, for example, I remember Bruno saying like have flashcards and write down what you're going to say before you say it. So then you think about what you're saying before you do. Um, so it's really um, important and it's very clear and very explicit for the kids to understand what you're saying. Um, and I walked around a school where I saw, you know, Bruno Reddy teach. I saw Chris Bolton teach. I saw Sam Dolan teach. I saw Lydia Povey teach. And I wouldn't make resources if it wasn't for seeing KSA because I finally saw, wow, these resources are incredible. These kids learn a lot more than my kids are learning. Therefore, I need to start making my own resources. I saw a school which had really fantastic um, behavior management, but also balanced with joy factor. Kids were smiling and happy in class and they were learning so much at the same time. So part of who I am and part of where I am now boils down to being at you know, working in really great schools, but also meeting great people and keeping those connections and learning from other really great teachers because you just learn more by going in and observing others. Um, so I think that's my somewhat not very brief summary. <laughs> no, that is that is, it's fascinating to me. I've I've about a million questions to ask you uh, based on that. But, but just to just to get started, um, it's interesting. So obviously we've had Danny Quinn um, on the podcast, the most controversial interview I've, I've I've ever had on here. We had the NSPCC on my case and and all sorts. It was brilliant for listening figures though. But uh, the question I asked Danny, and I'm going to ask you the same thing, is obviously having worked at Michaela and and Great Yarmouth School, and you, you've spoke about the importance of behavior and culture could, could do you think Naveen are you kind of tied in could you could you not work anywhere where behavior was an issue where kids weren't focused weren't willing weren't wanting to learn all the time would that be a problem for you um my honest answer is that I wouldn't go to a school where behavior wasn't a priority um, and the reason why is because i do believe that a teacher's job, a classroom teacher, is to be able to teach and for kids to be able to learn. And the responsibility of the teacher is to put in place um, or to action the behaviour management policy that's put in place by SLT. I feel like it's SLT's remit to make the conditions of learning and conditions of teaching ideal for the teachers. Um, Yes, I could go to a school and teach in a school where behavior wasn't a priority. Um, I could do that. I wouldn't be very happy because I would be firefighting a lot of the time. And I can imagine what would happen if I was a teacher going into a school which behavior wasn't um, so well enforced. It would be Miss Rizvi's too strict. I don't like Miss Rizvi. I like other teachers because they are less strict. Miss Rizvi forced me to sit in a chair. Miss Rizvi forces me to like do my work Miss Rizvi is too straight and too boring and I don't like her um, <laughs> and that is that is what would happen whereas that would happen because everybody else is doing something different to what I'm doing and that's not a that's not a good thing you want your teachers to be singing from the same hymn sheet Catherine will always say it Michaela we sing from the same hymn sheet Barry would say the exact same thing for a school to run as a cohesive system, teachers have to all be doing somewhat the similar thing, applying behavior in a similar way, following a similar behavior policy. So I really, I wouldn't personally go to school knowing that behavior wasn't a priority. Um, I know David Dowd has been on your podcast and he's mentioned that behavior is a really big issue for teachers to teach. Like it's so frustrating not being able to teach a full lesson that you've planned because of behavior. But imagine how much you could achieve, how much the kids could learn, the kids miss out. It's not even the frustration that you have as teachers, that the children that stand in front of you 
walk away learning less than what you plan for them to learn and i don't think i could live with that i would find that really really hard <laughs> yeah absolutely and my, my other question i wanted to ask you naveen is obviously some of the schools you've mentioned in fact almost all of them you've mentioned would be slightly controversial they'd be quite divisive people that have quite strong opinions of them particularly particularly michaela like a couple of years ago it was all kicking off um, with that and it timed nicely for, for danny coming on the show but also great yarmouth as well it wouldn't be universally loved and um, particularly on on um, on Twitter so my question to you is um you you talked a lot about like the kids having joy and that the kids being happy kids how do you get that that I don't know if balance isn't quite the right word but if 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 we're in this kind of environment where behavior is is strict you know these rules are enforced how do you create the joy in the kids? Because you could understand um, how some people would say, say um, see that those two don't go together. If you've got all these strict uh, behaviour policies, where does the joy come from? Why are these kids so happy in these schools, Naveen? Um, the simple answer is that kids are happy because kids are learning. Kids walk away knowing that they've spent a day at school, they spent five hours in five lessons, and they've walked away knowing more than they did when they entered. And... I think when children know that they're in a classroom, that they are going to learn something, they are essentially happier because they walk away smarter. Every child, doesn't matter what impression they give you, every child wants to feel smart. They want to feel successful. They want to feel knowledgeable. And more importantly, they want to be knowledgeable. And every child has hopes and dreams, no matter what they are. If it's to go to university, if it's to go and join their father's business or if it's to go in offshore seas like it was a great Yarmouth. Many kids wanted to follow their parents' path and go into a line of work, but they knew that they needed to be knowledgeable and have qualifications. So I think when I was teaching, and this is quite a personal answer, is that kids knew where my lines were. They knew my non-negotiables. They knew Miss Rizvi will not tolerate this. But I would explain why I wouldn't tolerate it. So I remember at KSA learning that a lot of the behavior policies, the kids would be told the purpose behind the policies that were in place. So we don't talk in our lessons because that doesn't help you learn more stuff unless I'm asking you to have a conversation with your friend about something about which is in regards to the subject, then that is going to be beneficial. But you having a chat about what you did on the weekend is not going to make you more knowledgeable in the classroom. No, we do not throw things because if we throw things, we may hit someone in the face and that person may get hurt and that person's parents will be upset and that person may be really badly hurt. So we at Charter and even so more at Michaela, there's so much narration about why we do certain things, why I come across as strict, but I come across as strict because I want you to get the most out of your lesson time with me. But also the kids at Charter, they knew that I was strict the kids that charge knew all the teachers were strict, but the kids were always aware that the teachers cared for them. So, for example, I remember asking a kid, his name is Jay, he's wonderful, and um, he said, you know, Miss Rizvi is really strict, but she's not too strict. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, because when I get stuck, I can ask you a question and you won't berate me and you won't insult me or you won't get angry with me if I don't understand something that everybody else obviously gets you will help me to get to a point where I'll understand it um, if a kid makes a mistake I will say you know thank you for making this a chance for all of us to learn so I guess the joy factor comes in by building a relationship with us children you know teaching is relationship teaching is basically relationships with a bunch of children who you don't really know very well um, but then you begin to know them really well 
So, and I know I can't imagine being a teacher and not having a relationship with a child. I can't imagine not knowing their name or knowing what makes them tick or what makes them struggle. So a lot of my kids, they know where they know my non-negotiables, what I will not tolerate and why I don't tolerate them. But they also know that they are able to be honest with me. Miss Rizvi, I don't understand what you're saying or I'm a bit confused about this question. Or you mentioned this one point. Can you mention it again? Um, but they also know that if they step out over the line, that there will be consequences and they understand why those consequences exist. Um Kids want discipline. It sounds it sounds weird to say and weird to hear, but kids appreciate order. They appreciate structure. They appreciate knowing where they know, knowing where they stand. And if I do this, this is what will happen. If I do this, this is what will happen. Um, therefore, I should not do this because this is bad. I should do this because it is good. Um, I guess that's the kind of the answer. The question I would really give. <laughs> no, it's, fa- it's it, uh, absolutely fascinating stuff. This Naveen, I, I, and we're, um, no doubt these kind of things about the behaviour and the routines will come up later in this conversation when we talk about what the lessons look like and what the kids are doing and, and so on and so forth. No, that uh, absolutely fascinating. That. Um, let, let me ask you now. Um, one of my favourite questions to ask guests, and that that's about a favourite failure. So I wonder if you can think back to a lesson you've taught. It could be recently, it could be earlier on in your career, but a lesson that didn't go according to plan and crucial. What, what did you learn from the experience? So, because um, <laughs> I'm really cheeky, um, I've kind of going to take your question and I'm going to talk about how I've not necessarily taught a lesson that's gone badly. I've made a resource that didn't go to plan. Oh, I like it. Um, nice, which nice. I think is probably more the cause of why a lesson can go bad, can can go wrong. It's because the resource in front of you isn't very good. And um, I remember... In t- 2017 this was as Michaela and I made some circle theorem resources which I spent so much time making and I was I really checked them so thoroughly and I you know put them on Twitter because I was really excited to share them out loud <laughs> with the rest of the world and lo and behold um, there were so many mistakes it was littered with mistakes and I was so embarrassed I honestly I just that time I, I i i like think back to the time and i blush and i get really embarrassed already. <laughs> it's like all that embarrassment comes back um what kind of mistakes were there Naveen? so there were two folder mistakes one mistake one type of category of mistakes was there were some mathematical mistakes like numbers were adding up for in a triangle or in a straight line which you know is completely my fault you know i should have been far more thorough than i was even though i thought i was at the time i should have gotten a fresh pair of eyes to look at it before i put it online um, and that's the kind of mistake that should have been avoided. And that's more my responsibility to be more careful. But the second um, category of mistakes, which I take responsibility for as well, but I also realized I couldn't have not made that mistake at the time, which was the circle theorem images. The imagery wasn't actually accurate. So, um, for example, in a triangle, the largest angle will be opposite the largest side. Similarly, the smallest angle will be opposite the smallest side. Um the diagrams isn't state if they were drawn to scale or not, which obviously with convention you state it if it isn't. Um, and the second category of mistakes is what makes this overall um, embarrassment or this overall mistake my favorite mistake. Um, because despite the public embarrassment, um, it showed me that I had gaps in my subject knowledge. And being a math teacher is really hard um, because there are some things that you'd even know that you didn't know. I had no idea um, about certain imagery aspects when you make resources and how vital it is to either make them completely 
accurate, so the largest angle is opposite the longest side of a triangle, or to state that it isn't. And it made me realize that subject knowledge development is genuinely never-ending. Um, my degree was in PP, so it wasn't even in maths. Um, and I now make an incredibly conscious effort to continually improve my subject knowledge um, to the point that I have notebooks and notebooks worth of questions and problems that I solve my own time to understand, A, what's the mathematics that I need to be able to solve a problem like this? And B, what is the knowledge that I need to um, structure, create and organize for a child to access a mathematical problem like this? So now, even though my job now is to make resources on mass, um, what I learned from this experience is that if you genuinely aren't sure about some aspects of knowledge, that is okay. It is okay to not know certain aspects of mathematics. You're not necessarily taught as high priority when you're doing your ITE what it is or what it takes to make a good resource to teach in a class with a bunch of kids. That isn't a high priority thing that you're taught. Um, and math is huge. Oh, my God. It is ginormous. I get more and more horrified by the day by how big it is in terms of how much children have to learn within the space of 11 years to perform in an exam to then potentially go on to further study. So... Um, now at United Learning, when you make when I make a resource, um, for example, right recently I've just finished off um, angles and parallel lines resource, and I use GeoGebra as opposed to before I use Active Inspire. GeoGebra is right now my favorite thing in, in life. I have spent, <laughs> if you type in Naveen Rizvi, you'll find out 400 mathematical images that I've drawn on GeoGebra um, for this parallel lines book, and it's taught me so much. And now the booklet is finally done. Um, all the United Learning teachers have access to this. Uh, my my boss, Faye Shepard, and Amanda Whitehead, they thoroughly review the book, and then it goes through a second review by somebody else within the team. So always get resources, have a fresh pair of eyes, look at them. Um, but I think it's important to learn. We all have disasters. I definitely do. I think it's because I always have been one to experiment more than others, so I tend to have a tendency to make more mistakes than other people. But I'd rather continue experimenting and making errors um, because I wouldn't be where I am now, and I wouldn't have the job that uh, do have now but um, I think what I do a po a po an important point to mention is that from that experience I learned that Twitter is brutal like Twitter <laughs> <laughs> some people love to make somebody feel very 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 bad and small but equally there are some people who were so kind and would email me privately or direct message me privately to say hey love your enthusiasm um, really love some resources a few errors that you've mentioned here that you need to probably be more careful of next time um, but, you know, thanks for being somebody who wants to make resources and put them up and share them out of the world whilst having a full teaching load at a really, really intense school. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of my favorite failure because I've so much from it. It's a great answer, that, I mean, and just a couple of things on that. I mean, the, the not to scale one's a classic, right, because it, 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 you're absolutely right that what, what we don't want is additional misconceptions coming in into there where kids are working out answers and it's coming out 70 degrees and then they look at the size of the angle and it looks like an obtuse angle or whatever so it's so easy to to, to slip into that because you you're using kind of generic images and you just kind of bang your numbers in there and you almost you don't want kids to be able to estimate to get the answer you want them to be able to calculate but then there's that fine line of when it tips over to being actually detrimental when it doesn't look look 
as it's calculated out to be. So I think that's an important point. And my, my other thing I just wanted to ask you, Naveen, is because I've experienced this on Twitter myself. Like I'll put out a series of questions for my um, variation theory website. And these days I'll think really, really hard about whether I can actually be asked sending those out because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to send them out on Twitter and then I could name three people who are going to send me some quite well, nasty's not the right word, but it's there's there's one type of criticism, which is, as you say, um, I'm not too sure about this transition between these questions. Have you thought about doing this? And that's really, really useful. Like I've spotted something that I don't necessarily agree with, but here's a suggestion for what I possibly would do. I love that. That's absolutely brilliant. But the kind of criticism that says this is the worst thing I've ever seen or this is crap. or like I, 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 It doesn't it doesn't add anything to it. It's just like, all right, brilliant. You hate this, but no one's forcing you to use it and so on and so forth. So the question I was just going to ask you there was, did it make you think twice about sharing things kind of going forward in future? Because you reach the point, I don't, well, I don't know. I certainly have. I reached the point where I think, God, is it worth it? It's like I'm, I'm I'm just trying to do a bit of good, kind of share a bit of stuff around. I'm trying to learn for myself, but also help other people and, and, and so on and so forth. And sometimes now I really think twice about sharing stuff just because I can't be arsed with the kind of hassle mm. and having to defend every single bloody decision I've made. Is that something that, that ever kind of crossed your mind to think, actually, I'm just going to keep these things to myself going forward? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think... When I started blogging, which was when I was 21, I literally just did it as an attempt to just diarize some of the things that I was doing because I honestly felt that the way that the ideological kind of path I was going on, the stuff that I was reading was very different to what my first placement school was all about. And my first placement school was all about collaborative learning and Kagan and um, group work, which I'm glad I had that experience of because it taught me how it looks in a classroom, but I felt like the kids weren't retaining what I had taught them in that way. So I wanted to see other things. So then when I saw KSA, and then I I realized I could change my practice and try different things. My mentor pushed me, so, you know, try different things. This is your time to really try different things. And so I started diarizing it. So I started writing a blog. It was just, it was purely for me. It was purely for me to think and to write and to question and to test and trial things. Then I guess when I got to Michaela, it was a bit different then because there were so many people watching the school and there were so many people watching you and there were haters and there were lovers. Um, <laughs> there really were, you know, I remember some of the, I remember once getting a voicemail on the school phone and hearing it and it was just like someone, I'm not going to say what this person said, but it was just such unkind stuff. So I became in a, bit more aware that what I put online would be heavily criticized, not because necessarily what I put online is bad, but because I'm part of a school where many people don't really necessarily want it to do very well, because there were people out there who do it who did exist. So now when I make now when I put up a resource of anything that I do, I will run it past a couple of my um, professional colleagues, some of my friends, who will look at it very thoroughly, very critically. They'll read between the lines. So they'll think about what this blog post says, but how some people will perceive what yes. it's going to, you know, how they will read it. So, for example, I mentioned this to you before, that um, I wrote a blog post um, on Tuesday night, and I sent it to one of my best friends who, like, has nothing to do with education. He is a barrister, but he um, is very honest with me, and 
you sent me this feedback last night saying, you know what, like, I think it's a really great post. I think it's really honest. However, I think um, it will be perceived the wrong way and you'll be bullied heavily a lot on Twitter. So I wouldn't publish this um, blog. And then I was quite surprised. I read the blog post and then I and he put down comments like this is written like this, but it's perceived like this. It doesn't matter what you're saying. The perception is far more important because that's what will cause the backlash that you don't really want to receive. But um, I try and focus my my work on terms of the resources that I produce. And yes, there are people who will say mean things, but I just don't respond to them. I just don't even, I don't read the tweets. It will say person A. I'm like, oh, I know what this is going to say already before reading it. I just want to look at it. So, I mean, can, I, can I just ask a bit? Are you good at that? Because I'll tell you what I'm bad at is if like 10 people say, I really like this, thank you. Or they say, I like this, but I'd probably do this, this and this. But one person says something quite hurtful, quite upsetting, quite just like abusive is a bit of a bit of a stretch, but just says something really negative without any kind of suggestion of improvement. That's all I focus on. And I like that. That can ruin my night. But are you are you at the stage now where you can you can focus on the good and, and filter out? And if so, how, how, how do you do that? I just realize that a person has no idea who I am. That person does not know me. The person is just making a sweeping claim. And um, they're just not like with all due respect, they're just they don't know who I am. So there's no point to give them any value. There's one person who is on Twitter who I speak to every now and then. He's not very nice to me. He's actually quite horrible. Um, and he wrote something on Twitter and I actually responded to him for the first time and said, excuse me, you do not you do not know who I am you know we are not we're not pals you don't have you spent 30 seconds with me in your entire life you have no right to make this kind of comment so i guess my i know i think you have far more people who are um like who are who may be negative because you have a wider audience but i just got to the point that i just don't really care as much anymore i'd rather focus on people who are politely respectfully emailing me privately suggesting really great ideas even people who um, tweet suggestions. I'm like, yeah, I understand that. But if it's going to be some kind of constructive feedback, I don't see why it can't happen privately. Mm, um, yes. So like I spend, I do a lot more DMs than I do tweets. Um, so I think it's just far more respectful um, because the person is on a public platform and people, you don't know who's reading that. You have no idea who's reading that. A lot of the jobs that I've received have come from Twitter and if I'm sure if some of the people that have hired me read some of the stuff that people wrote about me on Twitter, they probably may not have hired me. So I'm very, <laughs> I'm very, very conscious about what I write on Twitter, how I do it as well, because I don't want someone's life to be affected. Not saying it necessarily will be, but, you know, that person may want to get a job in the future and that may be undermined by something that I may say on Twitter. So I might as well do it privately. Um, yeah, I guess a bit of a tangent on the answer, like, on the question. No, it's, and I think it's, no, not at all. I mean, um, I think it's a really important thing to, to talk about because, again, even in the, the relatively short time that you've been teaching, and certainly I've noticed this in the last few years, Twitter's taken on a whole new life and, it, and it's, it's changed the job that we do. And p particularly if, we are people who put out these ideas and, and make suggestions. It's it's a whole new dimension. I remember when I first started um, teaching, so what, 13, 14 years ago, like the only way you could kind of share stuff is you just uploaded it to Tez. And even mm -hmm. Tez was kind of in its infancy there. And 
what tended to happen there is people would just give it a star rating. Very few people would would leave comments and stuff. Um, and it was a kind of a bit of a niche audience. But now with blogs, with with podcasts, with Twitter and so on, everything's very public. And, and particularly with, um, I think, um, a lot of talk of research and education has come to the forefront over the last few years. And, and we're starting to see the, these divides that have possibly always been there between people who, who think that, kids should be taught and kids learn in, in very different ways they become much more much more visible to, to people now and 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 it's the classic thing with social media that you, you kind of hide behind your 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 kind of twitter name your twitter handle mm. even if people who know even if people know who you are you're still more likely to say something on there than you would be if you were meeting that person face to face and the nuance is lost and so on so i mean here's a classic example so just yesterday um, i was doing a talk in 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 birmingham and um, to to pr- primary school teachers now i always panic naveen speaking to primary school teachers I saw your tweet. I, good god i'm i'm completely out of my depth but i just put a little comment on twitter i'm um, saying that um a bit nervous about this talk to primary school colleagues because i'm going to advise them all to rip all their displays down in their classroom and, you know got, got a few likes got a few you know and i just did it as a bit of a joke and so on and so forth but if you read the thread somebody said to me something like how dare you and um, how arrogant are you and all and all all this kind of stuff and again but then i thought to myself it's fair enough because if you it's, it's like what you said i mean it's it's how things are interpreted right like if you just see that statement and you don't know me and you look up my profile i'm a secondary school teacher you think you arrogant thing what the hell do you know and so on <laughs> and so forth so again if if you start over analyzing every kind of tweet or blog and stuff nobody had ever put anything out but i i, I need to get better better at ignoring stuff i think um, and and as you say certainly learning from the constructive side of criticism but not letting the more negative side get me down i think that that that's the lesson i'm I, i've got to get better at anyway but like, anyway um, i mean a lot of the oh, sorry, blogs sorry a lot of the blogs that i like i actually only publish about 20 percent of the blogs that i write purely because i'm just so scared of how something will be perceived um and that is something that i've learned from being on twitter but it also made me realize that maybe that blog post just wasn't good enough to go online um and that's more something that's that's a very personal thing but i wouldn't want somebody who has great ideas to not put this stuff out online because of the backlash that backlash will come from somebody who's got ten thousand followers person who's got like two followers you know it doesn't really matter the backlash will be there but you should never anyone who's listening do if you have great ideas if you want to try things you know that experimentation is so welcomed you should never be hesitant to try something that nobody else is trying and remember that the people who are giving you any backlash they're not trying to do what you are doing so you are evidently doing more and that's a really good thing I think you're right, Namina. And I think the other thing is we, we, we best not be too negative because we both know there are a hell of a lot of people on Twitter who are the nicest people in the world who will support people, who will give them praise, give them really positive, amazing suggestions. And again, like, um, so Chris McGrain is a, is a great example of this. He, he, he's great. He'll, he'll chuck, he'll chuck a resource up there. And he'll say, what do people think? And people from from all different angles will be coming in with suggestions. Mark McCord will say something. Danny Brown will say something. Mike Ollerton will say something. Chris Bolton will say something. You've got all the extremes. And Chris is great. He takes them all on board, responds to them all, and so on and so forth. And that that's when Twitter can work well. But we, we both know that there's there's kind of other aspects of it. But I would definitely endorse what you've just said there, Naveen. If, if people are listening and they're thinking, oh, God, I best not put anything out there now. This sounds absolutely horrendous. Definitely 
definitely do definitely just chuck it into the mix but try and take a bit of Naveen's stoicism there and and (laughs) realize that the people aren't gonna like it not everybody's gonna like it but we there'd be enough people who find benefit from it and so on no that's super right Naveen well I want to turn to to planning a lesson now I've asked this question to many, many, many guests over the last three and three years, four years that this podcast has been running. But I don't think I've ever been more excited about asking um, it than I am to you, because I've had the, the benefit of watching you give talks on lesson planning, resource writing, atomization over the last few years. And I've always found it fascinating. And I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody and don't take this the wrong way, but take it to the extreme in the way that you do, in the way that you think. Think through every single question, every single example, every single word you say, and so on and so forth. So, God knows where this is going to go or how long this is going to take. <laughs> I'll I'll be interrupting you at numerous numerous occasions to ask for clarification or just take us down other tangents. But I just wondered, I mean, can you take us through the process of planning a lesson and the resource creation that goes into it and the thought process of breaking that topic down and so on and so forth? And as a world exclusive for listeners, when Naveen's talking about some of these resources and some of these questions, um, we're actually going to provide screenshots of them so you can actually see what this looks like and they'll be available on the show notes page. So to start us off, Naveen. What what's the topic? What kind of uh, what year group or um, ability um, set would this would this would this be aimed at that you're going to describe to us here? Okay, so um, this was a really quite hard decision to pick what um, like what unit of work that I have previously taught and which one I would talk about. But um, I made a very deliberate choice to choose a booklet that I made for um, my year 11 class at Graham Charter. This was set three out of set six. And um, the topic I chose, well, the one that I resourced at the time is change the subject and rearrange the formula. And um, I'm not I'm not talking about a lesson, I'm talking about a series of lessons, only because um, my booklet, that the booklets that I make cover a large range of lessons. And I think the minute you start planning what I'm teaching within this certain frame of time, you start losing the big picture of, what you want kids to develop as a sense of understanding of this topic. Yes. So um, it's really important to just plan a, ser- a series of a series of um, work and kind of go through that depending on how long it takes or how um, quickly it takes. Um, and what I've noticed that the initial teaching stages of a unit of work take longer, but when you've, once you've laid the foundation of the topic that you're teaching, then you can you pick up the pace later on. So it may seem like you make a booklet and it takes a while to start teaching it and you think, oh God, this takes me forever. I'll never get to the scheme of work. Panic, panic, panic. But you save time later down the line. So um, so this is year 11, set three out of set six. Um, and I chose this class and I chose this unit of work because um, the results really mattered to these kids. You know, they went, they were at school, which, you know, teachers tried really hard, behaviors really hard to manage and they had they didn't actually know that much in year 11 and they were really nervous about their pending exams so the results really mattered to this class it was a turnaround school um and it was inevitable that the pupils that I had in front of me um would have really big gaps in the understanding of the subject um so and I chose this booklet because there's a lot of success that I saw from the pupils on a daily basis but in the basis of they remembered what had been taught weeks later um a half term later 
when they came to the exams and doing mock papers, they had remembered what had been taught. So this is why the um, booklet I've chosen is the one that I want to talk about. So, um, and just just on that, Naveen, because again, you, you've hit upon something interesting, and I'm really pleased you chose this topic because, of course. Kids will have been taught rearranging the formula, probably from year seven onwards, right? Mm. And whenever I looked at this booklet that you've sent through, um, and particularly when I looked at the contents page, and I saw how much time you're dedicating to, to kind of one step rearranging and how many different versions of that, I was looking at some of the questions thinking, well, yeah, some of my kids would have seen this in year seven, in year eight. But then as I, as I look at it and think, whoa, actually, she's doing something really interesting with this. I thought, yeah, the, the, there's quite a bit going on. But the point I wanted to make is that I don't know about you, um, but I always find it difficult teaching something that kids have experienced before. Mm. So you, you mentioned there that the kids have got gaps in their knowledge. But of course, the problem is going to be it's not the same gaps, like different kids sat next to each other will have different misunderstandings, di- different areas of weakness within that topic and so on and so forth. So did you before we get into actually what you did did you say to the kids was there any introduction along the lines of look I know you found this hard but we're going to do it again but we're going to do it completely differently or did you prepare them in any way or prime them in any way for the way that you were going to be tackling this particular topic um exactly so when I, in regards to the year 11 class you know I was not qualified at all to measure or to um, to find out how much of what the kids had learned over the four years they had remembered. That was something that I was not qualified to do. So I assumed that they knew nothing about the topic and started well, from the what very do you beginning. Mean by that? What, what do you mean by that, Naveen, that you weren't qualified to do that? Because, like you said, that there are the two children sat on each other, the gaps that one child has may be totally different to the gaps that the other child has, but the cause of those gaps may be different. So one child may have gaps in knowledge because they don't know how to rearrange a one-step equa- one formula, but one child may not be able to rearrange because they don't know how to um, inverse operations of certain yes. things. So the gaps, so I don't know, A, I don't know what gaps they have. I don't know what the causes gaps are. Um, and the time that I would spend to find out the causes gaps wouldn't, would have wasted a lot of time. Got so it. to prevent that wasting of time, I, so but just to, make it more clearer. When I first arrived at Charter, I already spoke to the head of department and listed out all the things that we wanted to teach the kids before they sat their exam. And I spent a lot of my time thinking about what's the prior knowledge that these kids need to know, to access what they are about to learn in year 11. Because with rearranging um, a formula chain subject, majority of the times that kids struggle with this topic, it's not because the topic is hard, it's because all the prior knowledge that they require to even and learn what's being taught doesn't exist or if it does exist yes. it's very shaky so um before i taught the scheme of work really to year 11 which frankly was a mishmash of what we needed to teach them because we had a very short amount of time and it was a turnaround school that when i first arrived at charter i taught them really basic fundamentals so like fundamental algebra and double check that they could do all like double check they could do all the um four operations now that sounds quite tragic because some of them actually didn't know how to do by division for them they hated division oh my goodness i mentioned division on like the fourth day and they looked at me like who is this random person who just came to the school to teach us teach us division i hate division and all the kids like i remember they all simultaneously rolled their eyes and said division because they hated it that much but i taught them division within one lesson and then i gave the division problems every single day and they finally cracked division and then i remember one of the kids who i taught a lot he came for after school revision because he wanted to you so keen and he got a five one of his papers at the end 
um, which was extraordinary because he was on a one, basically. But he is like, I love division now. But, you know, division is also an important element of how of how to um, change the subject because you're going to be dividing. Yes, you're not dividing where you get a number. You're dividing using algebra. You're yes. dividing variables. So actually, children have to understand the position of a variable when they're dividing. Um, which is things so small that we take for granted. Because actually, that's really quite hard for a child to do. If they find division in number hard, they're going to find it hard in algebra. So um, I spend a lot of my time thinking about what's the prior knowledge that all the kids need to, learn, to know and learn before they actually um, access the rest of the mathematics and to teach them. So with, with the subject, you know, they need to know all operations, what are inverse operations. So kids, yes, kids know that when you're squaring, the inverse operation is square rooting. But do they know that for cube cubing it's cube rooting or for if you're holding something to power of five the opposite is holding to the root of five you know going to that granular detail that hadn't ever been done before but was now being done before they even learned how to change the subject and we rearrange a formula so and can, can i just ask on this naveen this this kind of way of, of listing this 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 pre-existing knowledge or the prerequisite knowledge that, that kids will need to access the new thing you're going to teach like i find that sometimes quite difficult and i think this is this is the classic curse of knowledge that there's there's a lot of things that we can just do as as maths experts and it's very hard i certainly find to to actually identify what we're doing when we do this new skill what what pre-existing knowledge and assumptions that we're calling upon so how do you do this process, Naveen? Do you essentially write a list first of all the things that you think kids need to know, then show it to another colleague or show it to a child or revisit it yourself a couple of weeks later and try to write another list and compare the two? How, how do you get good at figuring out what kids need to know if that's not a stupid question? Um, no, it's a really, really good question. Um, so I, the, the, the staff at the school at Charter have been there forever they're they're so loyal to the school they i know but I, I don't know a member of staff that's been there for less than three years so my year 11s had been taught by my colleagues already and um so i went and spoke to my colleagues and said right i've got set three can you just tell me what they've been taught last year so that every member of staff told me so the member of staff that i went to he told me what they learned in year 10 but he did say like you know behavior is really bad i try my best but yeah. um I don't know how much they're going to remember. They're probably not going to remember them much at all. But then I list, I said to him, right, here's the stuff that they, I think they really need to know um, to access maths just generally. And I list them out. And he said they don't know how to divide. They don't know how to multiply. They don't know, <laughs> they don't know what a prime number is. They don't know what prime factor composition is. They can't write numbers in index form. So we had a really honest conversation about the stuff that they would need to know, the prime numbers that they would need to know. Um, and I sequenced it in a way that I could teach that stuff within two weeks. But I I gave them a lot of homework. Um, I did a lot of quizzing with them. So I would give them quizzes two or three times a week to test that they really remembered the fundamentals. So division questions, multiplication questions, writing um, prime numbers with it in, in index form for prime factor composition, um, collecting like terms, collecting negative like terms. So I would give them questions on the quizzes of stuff they would find hard or would most likely forget. I would not test them on stuff that I knew the fact they'd remember tomorrow. So I would never test them on stuff that's easy that they're going to remember because the testing process only works when you test them on the stuff they are most likely to forget. 
and said that's hard. Not hard in the wrong way, hard in the sense of they have been taught it, but they find it hard to remember it. Therefore, I must give them quizzes to help them remember it more frequently because they're going to come across. If they're going to do um, how to collect like, terms of negative terms, like negative 5A minus 7A, negative 50A minus negative 70A, if they're going to do two questions like that every single day for two weeks, they're going to remember how to do it when they've got something far more complicated in front of them in the exam paper. So I, for me, it was having conversations with teachers that's with them previously. Um, I do think all math teachers have a sense of understanding that there are certain topics in mathematics that un, like, that open the gateways to, to f future learning. Um so, can I can I can I just ask on that, Naveen? Because again, again, this is this is another example of a tangent we we we're going to go down, and I just can't help myself because you're saying so many fascinating things here. You mentioned this this quizzing process. Now, first thing to ask you before I ask you a follow up question to this: Can you just talk us through briefly what those quizzes look like? Is that projecting questions on the board? Are they mixed topic quizzes? Do the kids mark them themselves? Are the scores taken in? What what does this quizzing, this kind of regular two times a week or however much it is quizzing process actually look like in the lesson? So um, this quiz is totally low stakes um, in the sense that it is only a mechanism to help kids be in a position where they have to think quite hard about what's being taught. Um, so, for example, what I would do is at um, the start of the week, I would look through my booklet and think, right, I'm going to cover from page 1 to 22. Okay, so what is the stuff that the kids are going to find really hard? So I just preempted the stuff that I knew that they would find hard. So I would circle the stuff in my booklet, and then I would write all those questions up into a Word document. And I would make like 10 to 20 versions of each question. So I'm just changing the numbers or I'm changing it in a way that it superficially looks different, but the depth, so the, the actual process that they're going to go through is repeated. Um, so, for example, like I mentioned with negative um, algebraic terms, I'm going to do like negative 5 and negative 7a, the negative 5 and negative 7a and negative 3a. So I'm changing one thing. I'm just making yes. it a little bit more difficult than it was before, but it's, it's focusing on what they need to remember. And then... I would um, break, I would take this document and break it down to five small documents, right? So I'd copy and paste, um, let's say I've got 20, que 20 questions and I made 10 types of those questions. So I would put into a new document um, 10 of those questions um, and then each document would have, um, so it's 10 different types of questions and each question would have two problems. Um, and I'd basically then have five documents ready, five quizzes ready. Um, in advance and that'd be like a small a that'd be like one a4 page or maybe be double-sided if it was diagrams with it or, or it'd be like two copies on one page that half it so it'd be like half an a4 piece of paper and um throughout and then i would give them this quiz and be like you've got 10 minutes and is this the start of the lesson start of the lesson end of the lesson yep. it depended on like okay. what i was doing that day so there's a lot of professional autonomy in terms of when I think it was best to do this quiz, I would give yes. them that quiz. Um, so if it's a 10-second starter or if it was sorry, a 10-minute starter, if it was um, a 10-minute thing at the end of the lesson or whatever. So um, And then they would um, self-mark it and then they would write a score. And I told them from the very beginning, do not even think about ticking something that is wrong. 
<laughs> do not even think about it because I have eagle eyes. I will find those mistakes. I will look through them. Don't even try. And, you know, and five of the naughtiest boys did try and they got lovely detentions with me because um, <laughs> they generally thought that I wouldn't follow through with what I said. So you're um, you're projecting the answers up. Is, is this right? Yeah. Uh, with working or just kind of just answers on their own? What, so and, and... I would have the handout. I'd have the answers done but um, as my own copy, but I would photocopy that. So um, just, so start again. They would do um, this kind of quiz in 10 minutes. I would have my copy already photocopied for them to take home, but I would go through it live within like two or three minutes. So some of so my, my copy that I'm going through on the visualizer, so it's on the visualizer. I've got a blank copy of the quiz that they have just done. Yes. And I'll go through the answers with them, but I will only go through live the stuff they are going to most likely get wrong. So I'm not going to go through the problem from start to finish. I'm going to tell them the answer and just say, right, most likely, I'm going to project the one that I've already filled in. Most likely, you've done line one, line two, line three. But I bet a lot of you got line two wrong. If you've got line two wrong. That's completely fine. Just raise your hand so I know who you are. And I would say very quickly, right, so three people got it wrong. That is fine. Okay, I, would, I think about why they got it wrong. Or if, if the whole class got it wrong, that's my responsibility to action it there and then. To give them that life ah, feedback. This is interesting. So it's not you're preempting this. So it's not the case of your let's say there's five questions or ten questions on this quiz. You're not projecting the answers up and saying, um, hands up if uh, if you got question seven wrong. Right, I'm now going to go through question seven. You're making a decision beforehand of what's the most important thing for you to go through. Is is that right? Exactly. And this is something that I learned when I was working with Kayla with Danny. So I'd have one. Um, completed version of the answers that I would want them to present their working like in their exam. So that'd be photocopied and I'd give them to them at the end of the lesson. But I also have a blank copy, which I'd go through live, but I wouldn't go through every single step because I just know that they won't, it won't be all the steps they get wrong. It'll probably most likely be this certain step. So the reason why I do this is because it's to save time as well, because yes. I want to go through the stuff that they are most likely to struggle with. Um, there's not much... It, it seems like, you know, it seems like, oh, it'll take extra two minutes, but extra two minutes here and there becomes a lot of time that's being wasted. But then the kids would take home their copy of the quiz. They would take home my answers that I photocopied for them. So they knew, right, so I got line two wrong on question four. Miss Rizvi did it this way. So I need to go home and practice that so I don't make that same mistake. But, um, and so... Then I would just, I wouldn't take the scores in because I just want to be like, raise your hand if you've got three or more, five or more, ten or more, blah, blah, blah. So just raise that hand. Um, because I just needed to see that the kids' hands were up for longer. I needed, to, so what I mean by that is when the kids were hand, their hands were up for longer, that means if I say you've got five or more, that means all the kids that are up, their hands are up, means they've got the minimum amount of questions that I need them to get right, correct. If they've got seven or more, right? Like, okay, right, all their hands are still up. That's really good. Ten or more. Okay, right, they've all got it. That's good. We're done. I see. And and the other thing I just wanted to, to, to clarify is you, you mentioned before, I think, that there's no point quizzing them on the easy stuff. You want to quiz them on the stuff they find difficult because 
if I'm right in saying that's the stuff that they're more likely to forget. And if you can quiz them on that, then we can tap into to Bjork's work that uh, mm. if we, we test recall on the point that they're forgetting, it's going to lead to this bigger leap in retrieval strength and storage strength and so on. Um, is there a, Well, firstly, have I interpreted that right? And secondly, is there a danger that there's some kind of if kids are always being quizzed on something difficult, that kind of confidence and morale and stuff drops. Are you, are you ever tempted just to chuck in a couple of easy questions just to give them a, a little bit of a boost? Um, so it depends what you mean by easy. So, for example, if I've got 10 questions on a handout, I expect the first three questions that I've put in to be done correctly because I've gone through it very clearly in class. I've done loads of questions of mini whiteboards. I've had sufficient practice on it. So um, I wouldn't call those four questions easy, but they are four questions that all those children should get right because I've gone through it to death. Doesn't make those questions easy. Just yes, there's equally likelihood they could get those questions wrong, you know, in an exam or later on down the line. But there's no point putting a question on there that I most definitely know they will get right. But the four questions that are on there, which I know they will get right, are important because they are still likely to forget it as much as they are to forget how to do question nine or question ten. Um, but I try and make the, four, four, the, the first four questions, like um, the minimum four questions they must get right, then the next three, like I expect at least... 70% of the class to get those right and the last whatever is two I expect the really kind of that is good those two questions are going to really um highlight the the bright the really 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 bright bulbs of kids who are thinking incredibly hard or thinking in ways that um I I know how to say it thinking in ways that are above and beyond Yes. So it's really important to know who are at the top end as well as who are at the bottom end. And just just again, just 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 on that, uh, am I right in saying that these then? Or, well, I, I don't know. In fact, what what type of questions are these, Naveen? Are these kind of? I mean, you you outlined one. It might be negative five x takeaway seven x. But are there kind of more complex multi-step problems, kind of contextual things, or are these kind of very much procedural questions to make sure that the the kind of foundational knowledge is in place? Um, that's a really good question. I think it really depended on the topic that I was teaching. Um, so let's pick transformations. Um, just as a random yes. topic, because that's because that would be quite easy to quiz. But um, for example, the first four questions I would ask would be like recall questions. So, for example, um, state the four pieces, the, the the amount of information that you need to state for a rotation. So yes. um, I remember I did, I think it was A C D. So, and they're right, and it'd be like ACD as a prompt, and they'd have to write angle, center of rotation, um, direction of rotation. Um, so I would, because that's the stuff that kids are going to get wrong in their exam. They're going to mm-hmm. be able to rotate it perfectly fine, but when it comes to questions asking them, describe the rotation, that's where they are most likely to fall apart. So my yes. recall questions at the beginning will not look like the exam question that you'll necessarily like, copy and paste from an exam paper. Yes. But it yes. is the same type of question. Um, testing them on what they're most likely to forget. I think that is really important because it took up less space on the paper and it tested the same thing 
and I was using a mnemonic device that I like. AC, I was I said like you know ACDC, but I forget the C says ACD. What's going to be <laughs> like you know year 11s doesn't matter what they are. They love the laugh. They love the cheese. Um, so I would have those mnemonics on the first four questions. Um, like example, I would I, I one exercise I included in one of the quiz was um, state if it's going up or down for, for a vector of translation. So um, like ne- like example. Um, Negative four at the top and like five at the bottom mm, is going left, yes. right, up or down. So th- they wouldn't they wouldn't write the number. I would write write down the write down the movement. So they write negative four if it's left or right, or if it's up or down. Um, yes. Equally, I'd, I'd, the question next day would change. The question next day would be, um, the object has moved four right and two down. Write the vector. And the yes. next day would be the object has moved five left, two down. Is this vector correct? So every single day, the question is slightly changing, but it's testing the same thing. And I think that is far more impactful than copying and pasting exam questions from exam papers because it's testing the same thing in different ways, but it's making their understanding of the question or the understanding of the topic far broader. Um, So does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So they're the kind of recall style questions and then would it go into more complex stuff as the as the quiz progressed would there be exam style questions or would there be multi-step questions in there or would it be focused mainly on this this kind of recall so i would include some exam questions but exam questions which are quite um like unusual so aqa exam papers are really useful to look at because they just have questions that really can test multiple concepts, but the issue that I had is that it was a fi- I found it I found it hard to find questions in exam papers that just tested the concept on its own. Mm, a lot of the yes. AQA papers are, and they are fantastic papers. Similarly with Excel, um, particularly the higher papers, is that they are now made to test more than one concept. So actually, a child has to know the entire domain of mathematics as opposed to a small sample. So I would find it hard to find questions, exam questions, which tested just the one thing that I wanted to test. Therefore, I started making my own questions. Um, but I would throw in some exam questions just to familiarize themselves with the layout and what it looked like. Um, but and could, could you and could you give an, a, a, us an example, if possible? I mean, I don't know if it is possible, but what would one of those kind of questions either that, that you'd created or an unusual exam style question what, what what kind of things are they assessing? What what does it look like? So I can picture these recall ones about translations and, and the information you need to give for rotations. But where are we going with these more kind of unusual questions, Naveen? So um, there was this really, really awesome volume question that I found, which didn't state the um, shape. So it didn't shape. It didn't state the prism. But it, it stated that volume A has a volume of 344. Um, volume B has a volume of 64. Um, what are these shapes? Or what, what's the prism? And I love that question because actually children need to identify that 344 and 64 are cube numbers. Therefore, those two objects are cubes. And... I think that, that's an interesting question because it looks like a volume question on the surface, but it's actually a cube number question, if you think about it, because you need to know that 7 cubed is 343 and 4 cubed is 64. So it's questions like that 
that are disguised as volume but actually were cubic questions now th- this is this is fascinating uh, to me uh, this to me and, and i apologize to keep banging on about these quizzing but i know it's it's something that a lot of teachers are now building in low stakes quiz and so on now we we seem to do these very very differently here because uh, my low stakes quizzes would be very much um kind of i guess recall uh, would be one way of summing them up but they would certainly be what i would describe as kind of skill-based questions so mm. i would do i would certainly have the rotation one that you mentioned at the start what piece of information do you need to give to describe a rotation i would also have in the um collecting like terms one you mentioned the negative 7x take away 5x but I tend to steer clear of the the more unusual kind of problem solving or exam based questions, I guess, because um, for me, this kind of low stakes quiz is um, a relatively quick kind of mm. part of part of the lesson. It's it's to, again, practice this recall. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all this foundational knowledge and I'm going to help the kids kind of piece that together as when they get to the kind of problem solving part of, of the learning process or whatever. But you all seem to be making a very deliberate decision to include these more unusual problem solving based questions within the low stakes quiz. Well, would that be right? Um, yeah. And the reason why I'd include them is because they are opportunities for kids to do questions where they have to not only look at the question, identify what have I learned recently that would allow me to do this question, but also what's the prior learning that I've done in the last six months that will help me for this question. So questions like, so a question like that is so beautiful and valuable when you've taught a unit of work, when you've taught multiple uni- units of work. So those questions are really valuable. And let's say I, I taught, I joined Charter in October and um, I would never bring that question in in October because they did not know yes, enough. Yes. And also I had made an explicit connection when I taught volume that when we see a cube number, you've memorized the first 10 cube numbers that you should instinctively know that that's going to be a cube. Yes, there are times where it may not be a cube, but if you see two cube numbers together, you should think these two objects must be cubes. So I've narrated in my teaching this connection between cube numbers and volume, and now I've made a question for that so kids can be like, oh, yeah, Miss Rizvi is right. There is a connection. Um, so... Part of it is thinking when you go further down the line, when you go from like some t- October to January and think, okay, so what units of work have I taught? Now, what kind of questions can I make which tie concepts together? And that is really beneficial because you're now preparing, you've now prepared children to access a question which is, mo- which is mixing concepts together. So it's about timing as well. I would never give that question to children when they had never, when they but they have never developed a secure understanding of cube numbers, identifying cube numbers, square root, uh, cube rooting um, uh, cube numbers, and volume. So it. it's about thinking about, is this question that I've chosen really going to be testing children's understanding, or is it inevitable that we'll, they will all struggle with it because they haven't been taught enough? You know, equally, you could throw that question in and think, I've taught them cube numbers, I've taught them how to cube root, I've taught them how to volume, but why... Didn't they see the, why did they not see the connection between the two? The answer would be because maybe you haven't 
um, explicitly made that connection for them, telling them that. So, for example, one of my favorite, my, one of my favorite blog posts is by William Emery, which he wrote in 2014. And um, I can't remember the name of the blog post. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Um, sorry, I'll, I'll try and remember what it's called in a minute. Yeah, and we can but, um, we can put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. just describe describe it. He talks about the mathematical web, and what he does is he it's a really famous image. It's an image yes. where he draws things 164 dots, and each dot represents a topic, and then. Um, he draws connections between each dot. So he talks about there are 164 dots. They represent all the topics. And now I'm going to draw links between these dots. And that's right. I think it's called something like you've never seen yes. a curriculum like this before or exactly. something like that. Yeah, right? that's it. I'm so sorry, Will. But like, yeah, that is it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like 164 dots and there's like 935 links. And um, it's the links that need to be explicitly taught for pupils to also be successful in their examination, but also for them to appreciate mathematics. I remember giving that question. I remember one of my kids, um, she really struggled with math. She came after school every day for like a year. I got sick of seeing her, but I loved seeing her because she really wanted to, <laughs> she really wanted to learn. And I never said no to her because she was just so keen. But when she saw her, she's like, oh, my God, that is the coolest question you've ever shown you, Miss Rizvi. Because she's like, 343 is seven cubes, so it must be a cube number, so it's a cube. Um, and I deliberately put 64 in there, because 64 is also a square number. So I wanted them to um, also realize, yes, it's a square number, it's also a cube number. Um, yes. But my point is, like, it's really important in your quizzing to not only test the recall of, do they are they able to recall certain facts, are they able to apply certain facts in a context like transformations, but also they need to be able to recall and articulate the connections that the assessments will examine. That's really interesting, that, Naveen. Yeah, that's something I'm going to have to have a, have, have a decent think about. I, th- I certainly agree and I, um, that doing there's no point including those questions until they're kind of fluent or automated the basics or whatever language you want to use but yeah i've certainly made a deliberate decision not to include those kind of questions on my low stakes quiz but now i'm thinking actually why not because i need to i need to quiz them on that as well i need them to remember these connections just as much as i need them to remember the actual kind of basic knowledge so yeah i'm definitely gonna have a a careful think about that and the other thing i just wanted to ask you just on testing um is you at the time of recording so recording this in the in the middle of january 2019 and very recently um i think it was your most recent blog post you put out um was was about it had elements about testing in there and there was there was two kind of sentences that that really caught my eye and i wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on these naveen the first one was the testing process was about 75 percent of the teaching process and then related to that, you also said the learning for pupils starts once they are tested. So just thinking about what we've just spoke about, about the low stakes quizzes, could you just elaborate on, on what you mean by those two sentences? Because I know when I read them, I thought, wow, that's that's quite a bold statement to make that. So just just talk us through those, Naveen. Um, so. I guess. The first point I want to make is that people think that testing is children sitting in silence doing an exam paper or they're doing a quiz. That's not the only form of testing. If anything, in your lessons, you are doing testing all the time. You just not realize mm. you're doing it. For example, when the kids come in and they're doing a recall exercise, that is a form of testing. 
testing. They're testing. Yes. They're in a position where they are thinking about what they've learned previously and they're recalling that and they're applying it and they're doing it in front of you on pen and paper with no assistance. That is essentially also testing. Then I would go through the work. Then let's say my lessons, I'd, I'd go to the starter, the market, and then I would start teaching. I'd go through the work examples. Now, when I plan my work examples, I also plan the questions I plan to ask, plan to ask the kids in advance. So I do a lot of thinking before I even do the execution of my lesson. And the questions that I ask, I ask very, um, I ask questions that really hone in to what I'm teaching. So, for example, if I'm teaching how to solve a one-step equation like 3x is equal to 5, and I would start with 3x is equal to 5, it's not 3x is equal to 6, 3x is equal to 5. And I'd ask the question, and I let's say I'm saying, okay, so I'm going to circle 3. 3 is next to the x. There's a secret sign between 3 and x, the time sign. So, if I hide this again, here's Here's 5x equal to 3. What's the secret sign between 5 and x? Because I'm trying to get the kids to focus on 5 and x have a secret sign between them. We can't see that sign, and that is okay. We can't see that sign. But you know that is a time sign. So I'm thinking about what are the things that the kids need to be focusing on and listening and thinking hard of when I'm talking and me asking those questions is equally a form of thinking, is a form of testing, sorry, because they're thinking about something, now they're being asked a question, and they are expected to all answer that question. So even if, if, even if I say 5x is equal to 3, what's the secret sign that goes here? 3, 2, 1, and they will say, multiplication sign, and they, they will all say it together. So um, that means every child has now answered a question. Yes, there are some kids who probably didn't answer that question. They probably... Well, like, I don't know what it is. I'm going to make a noise anyway. But then yes. they've also had the chance to hear what the right answer is. Because the other kids that knew the answer said the answer to the kid who didn't know the answer has now heard the answer. So that kid has learned something. And is it important, Naveen, that, that all these forms of testing, whether they are kind of re answering the questions you're just asking as part of your worked example and explanation, or if they're part of kind of doing a low stakes uh, quiz, is it important that it's the individual child themselves having the opportunity to try and figure out the answer for themselves first, as opposed to, right, work in pairs and see if you can figure out this problem or work in a group and see if you can figure out the answer to this. Is it is it an important decision for you that actually you want every individual child to have that opportunity to figure it out for themselves first? Um, I, I guess, yes, I would want the kids to have some time to think about it, but... In this example I've given, because I've taught them what the time sign is five seconds ago, I'd expect them to yes. remember it. But if it was a question that I knew that they needed more time to do, I would do it on mini whiteboards. So each child had a bit of yes. private time to do it. So I'd be thinking about, if I'm asking this question, how long is it going to take this child to do this question? So if it's taking a little bit longer, it's probably best to do it on mini whiteboards. If they're going to be able to answer the question because they've, they just, they all have, they know the answer because I've been teaching it for a long, long time. I've mentioned it several times before. And um, mm. then they'll do choral response. So, um, or equally, um, I have a post-it note on my desk of the kids that I just know um, always struggle in math. So I would give them the answer to answer a question one-to-one. -one. So I would say like, so last lesson we learned that 3x is equal to 5. I divide by 3 on both sides to so get 5 over 3. So now I'm going to change it around. What number goes at top? jack so then i would pick a child that i know who is struggling on this one thing and ask them that question at, um, like in front of the whole class would call call that kid 
Um, so I think it's three things. A, if all the kids have been told the answer to a question that you are going to ask again, then I'll do choral response. If it's a question that I know that some kids will do really quickly, some kids will take a little bit longer, then they, they need that time to think, I'll use mini whiteboards. If it is a case that there is a bunch of kids who always struggle to learn what you're teaching and every teacher knows who they are every teacher knows who those five kids are in each class who struggle i would then if it came to a point in my lesson where i got to a point that's asking or doing something that i think jack really struggles with this i'm going to ask jack i'm going to cold call him if jack can't answer the question I'm like don't worry about it, jack i appreciate you trying i'm going to ask i'm going to ask a kid who definitely knows the answer I'm going to ask someone like, I don't know, I'm going to ask Corbin, right? I'm going to ask Corbin. Corbin will say the answer, mate. Right, thanks, Corbin. Now, Jack, can you repeat the answer that Corbin has said? So, okay, now, Jack, remember what Corbin has said because tomorrow I'm going to ask you the same question because I really want to help you remember the stuff. So, kind of like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And I'm, and I guess that goes on to your, your, your kind of second point that you made there, that the learning for pupils starts once they're tested. And, and you go on further to say that listening isn't necessarily evidence that the kids have learned anything. Um, it's crucial for you, isn't it, Naveen, this, this regular opportunities to recall, to, to make connections and so on and so forth. And it, it's not enough for the kids to be sat there in silence, concentrating really hard. They need to be kind of active in the process and, and constantly being challenged to recall information. Well, would that be a fair summarization? Um, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when, when you w work at a school where um, kids are really well behaved and they're all silent and you think, oh, wow, like they're learning so much. My question is, but how do you know they are learning? And more importantly, how do the kids know that they are learning? Um, so when I go through a bunch of word examples, that's literally me just talking. It's like me making noise. But it's me also saying things that I may emphasize to be important, but the children may not know how important they are. So mm. I may be thinking, so we're going to solve equations, 3x equal to 5. I'm going to divide by 3 on both sides. I would narrate, I was like, I'm going to draw a line under 3x. That is called the vinculum. We have learned that the sign is called the vinculum. I write 3 below. I'm also going to draw a line on the other side of the equal sign under the 5. 3 goes below. I don't write 3 over 5. That is wrong. I draw a cross through that. I write 5 over 3. It's like, now I can cancel 3 and 3 to get 1, not 0, because when I divide a number by itself, I get 1. I do not get 0. X is equal to 5 over 3. I can leave my answer like that. That's perfectly fine. Some of us want to write it as a mixed number. You can completely do that. But 5 over 3 is also correct. This is my answer. I must write X equals 2. I must not write 5 over 3 because that makes no sense. I must write X equals 5 over 3. So I'm emphasizing. I'm narrating what's in my head. I'm taking... I'm taking what is really important in my head. What do I want the kids to do? How do I want them to present their work? I'm going to narrate like a story. I'm going to emphasize it. But even though you're emphasizing, it doesn't mean the kids know how important what you're saying really is. It's only when they get pen to a mini whiteboard and they start doing the working out in the same layout that you are, that you know that they have understood what you said. Because what if a kid writes 3x equal to 5 and writes 5 over 3? I wouldn't be happy with that. I don't think many teachers would be happy with that at all. What if the kid writes 3 over 5 instead? Even though I emphasize that 3 over 5 is wrong, Jack may not have listened to that. Jack may have thinking, Miss Rosie is talking, she's making noises, I'm not listening. <laughs> like, Even though Jack's a really good boy, 
he may he may not take what I, even though I've explained that misconception, he may not have listened to it, even though he saw it, even though it looks like he is watching me and listening, he may not be listening. Um, and then like, what if what if the equal signs aren't in line? What if Jack wrote um, both the wrote three x over five, where the denominator is five on both sides? It's only when you start testing them that you they are really truly learning what you have told them. And I remember in Mark McCourt's blog post, um, not blog post, in his podcast with you, um, he mentions that when you are resourcing and when you are planning, it's really important to think. How do I know the children are learning? Like them listening to me doesn't doesn't tell me that they've learned what I've taught them. Um, only when I'm seeing them doing many whiteboards, I actually know they have they have learned what I've taught them, or they're able to do what I've just done for them. Um, and also, when the kids hear like, right, fantastic mini whiteboard work. I'm gonna take Kelly's mini whiteboard. I was um, entering a slant track me, piece three, two, one, and slant. Look at Kelly's mini whiteboard. Kelly's done exactly what I wanted her to do. Her equal signs are aligned. She's drawn the vinculum on both sides. She's put the correct number underneath the vinculum as well. She's crossed out and wrote a one, not a zero. Really important, lovely Kelly. That's really great. We want to all try and get a mini whiteboard work just like this. And then I give them another question. And they're like, oh, brilliant, Jack. You've, your whiteboard work is exactly the way I'd like it to be. It's really accurate. The working out's you know, there's not, there's no fault there. Now, none of Jack has now gotten to a point that he can do what I've wanted him to do. Now that has been achieved through me testing him many whiteboards. That would not have happened, or there's a possibility that it would not have happened if he just listened to me. But I'd find out by him doing work in his exercise book with pen to paper, and it'd be littered with mistakes, and then I'd realise. Three-quarter way lesson. Jack hasn't learned what I've taught him. So, 45 minutes. 45 minutes have gone of the lesson, and Jack hasn't learned what I've gone through. And that's really frustrating because Jack is a people that needs to learn. If anything, he's more behind than my other than his other knowledgeable peers in that class. But he has the same amount of time as his more knowledgeable peers to get to the same point, but he's further behind. So, me asking questions whilst I'm going through word examples that hone in the points that Jack needs to memorize or understand. Me asking many whiteboard questions is also a form of testing because it's testing whether the children have um, understood what you have talked through. And then they wonder the many whiteboard questions and they put them away and they get their books out. They're now putting pen to paper, but it's not littered with mistakes because I've preemptively planned what would the kids find really hard? what are the important things that I need kids to remember from what I'm saying because kids will not remember everything that you say listening is probably the most active form of learning I, it baffles my mind how um, at university I, I struggle at university to like listen to a lecture like two hours of dense political philosophy is hard <laughs> to listen to and there's no way on earth I'm going to remember what, you, what my lecture said at the start to the end now listening is one of the most active forms of learning it is really hard to get someone to listen kids look like they're listening but they're most likely not because it's a really hard thing to do so you have to have things in your lesson which allow you to know are the kids learning but also by doing many whiteboards jack has also learned that he has he is learning jack knows that he is learning that that is so important because that not only is important for jack because jack needs to know that he's learning but it it boosts his self-esteem it makes him more confident makes him 
feel successful. It makes him feel more likely to learn because he's felt success. So testing is so valuable, not because it tells you what the kids know. It also tells a child what they know. And it makes them more inclined to learn because children want to feel successful. But Jack doesn't feel successful because he hasn't felt successful for a very long time in maths. But the testing process has done that for him. And then when they do questions in their book, it's not littered with mistakes. And then for Jack, then I read the answers and Jack's got all 10 questions right. He feels success because he's learned something. And that's I've tested them at the start of the lesson with recap questions. I've tested them whilst asking them questions during the worked examples. I've tested them whilst giving many whiteboard questions to get them to point that every single child can do what I've asked um, 98% or 100%. And then they do many, they do work in their books. That's also more testing because there's no teacher guidance there. They're doing it by themselves. I'm circulating the room. I'm checking with my pen. I'm double, I'm stopping at the kids that are on my post-it note that are definitely struggling um, because they will need more assistance than the others. Um, so essentially that part of my lesson, that whole lesson, 75% of it is testing, even though, but the reason why people don't see that is because they don't see testing in more than one form of let me have a pen and paper and do something by myself with no help. Because that is probably the final form of testing. That is the kind of um, the final stage of testing, if that makes sense. Um, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I think it's quite a, a powerful and quite profound statement that, Naveen, that the learning for people starts once they are tested. And yeah, that again realizing that testing isn't just doing exams it doesn't necessarily mean increased teacher workload it doesn't need even need mean that teacher needs to mark or take in these marks or anything it's it's a learning tool not just an assessment tool i, th I think is yeah is, is is a really powerful thing to think about and the final thing because again we're off we've been off on a tangent for about an hour here we, we were talking about planning a lesson about an hour ago it's completely my fault but it's, it's fascinating stuff the last thing i just wanted to ask you Naveen, before we definitely return to, to planning a lesson and this this might be i don't know i don't know what your thoughts on this are going to be but um whenever you were you were describing that lesson there and you were saying you've got this post-it note with the with the five kids that that you know are going to find maths difficult and most teachers out there know who the kids are who are going to struggle and so on and so forth and um, two questions really and um, do you find that those names of kids change with the topic? So some kids will struggle with geometry, but will will fly flew with that, uh, fly with algebra. But also, is is there a danger of almost kind of a, a self fulfilling prophecy that because you're expecting the kids to struggle and because you're kind of there providing support and um, and asking them targeted questions because you know they're going to be finding it difficult that that's that actually causes them to 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 be a bit slower than the other kids and, and find it find it more difficult is is there anything in that at all so two questions really first do, do the names of kids change with with topic and secondly is there a danger that if we preempt who those kids are going to be actually almost by definition they become those kids who are going to struggle mm, no they're both fantastic questions um with the first question yes the name of the kids does change per topic because the cause of the child struggling with that topic will be because of prior knowledge if i'm teaching completing the square i can instant i can i can think about the five kids who in my lesson will struggle with completing the square because they have a very they struggle with fractions they struggle with dividing an integer by two that's an odd number like they're going to find it hard to write five divided by two as five over two so i'm thinking about maybe if i've got a kid who is really 
good at the subject that I've just, the topic I've just taught, but now I'm going to complete the square. I'm thinking they're going to struggle with it because they find fractions really hard. Yes, yes. I'm not saying they're going to struggle with it because I feel like they're going to struggle with it. I'm thinking about their prior knowledge in this aspect is a little bit weaker than the, than the other kids. Therefore, they're going to struggle. So I'm thinking about what, I'm also thinking about the cause behind why these kids struggle. It's very, it's easy to know who these five kids are but it's hard to articulate why those kids are on that list. And when you articulate why those kids are on the list, it's not like whatever you said in terms of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or whatever it is. Yes. Um, sorry, I'm just not very good at that term. Um, so, <laughs> yes, the list of those kids change per topic, but also those kids that you start off at the start of the year will also change by helping Jack in half term one a lot more. He fell off the list by half term three because he had gotten so much support from me that he now was more, he was listening more. He was He was trying more. He was working at a faster pace. He was in school more as well. And you know what? There's some kids who will come off the list because they will get into better habits, they'll listen more, they'll learn more, they'll do more. But equally, there are some kids who are really bright that will never be on the list, but then they they have problems at home, or they're an, they become an absentee, or they become really badly behaved because of external influences outside school that are affecting them in school. So, for example, you can have... So, that list is always liable to change. In my head, that list has never really been fixed, unless I've had an SEN child who genuinely struggles to learn for reasons that um, I have been made aware by like the Senko or by their LSA or by their learning support. If I've got a kid who is um, he hearing impaired, like that was one thing. I, there's one kid that I taught who was always on my list. And the reason why was because he would hear me a little bit delayed than the yes. real time. And that actually prevented him from learning really well. It was really unusual. It was it was completely eye-opening. But to summarize, yes, the kids on that list will change per topic because their prior knowledge gaps may will differ between the kids. That 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 is just the case. What if a child's joined the school from a different part of the country and they haven't been taught fractions as well as the other kids? Mm. They will obviously be on that list. And that is okay. But by you ask them pointed questions in the lesson they will get to a point where they will no longer be on that list but that list isn't a bad thing because you want to get kids off that list the intention of the kids being on that list is to support them to be able to do what's happening in the lesson independently but they need a bit of push um so that list does change and i don't think it's self-fulfilling at all i think it you know, the, the intention of this is to get kids to do better or to learn more or to learn faster. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my answer. <laughs> Perfect. 
Right, Naveen. So one hour later, we are circling back to uh, talking about the, the lesson that you're putting together on or the sequence of lessons, I should say, on, on changing the subject and rearranging formula for I think it was your set three year 11 class. And and yeah. for, for, for the benefit of listeners, because it, it was a while ago, I, I, I first started talking about this. This was a class who you knew had struggled with this uh, in the past. You'd inherited them at the start of year 11. You'd had conversations with the year 10 teacher to identify identify possible areas of weakness but you'd also made a list of all these kind of key foundational knowledge that, that kids were potentially lacking and you were going to you were going to address all those a lot of them were kind of through quizzing that, that we've talked about and testing and so on now we then get to this, this booklet now i'm pleased to say we've just had a, a quick conversation there and this booklet's actually going to be available um, for, for anybody who's listening to this to download you'll be able to get this from the show notes it's a pdf and we'll also take some screenshots of specific specific things uh, that we talk about but I'd strongly recommend people download this possibly almost in preparation for this part of the the conversation because we're going to be talking exclusively about this booklet now the first thing Naveen that, that caught my eye is it 63 pages long this booklet now, that, <laughs> now, now that's big right now my first question to you is Am I right in thinking that is the dream to have one of these booklets for every kind of sequence of lessons? Would that be right? Every topic? Um, yes. So at United Learning, we have a fixed scheme of work, which is honestly so, so good. Um, it was made by um, my boss, Faye Shepherd, and we have been making booklets for each unit so far. And every booklet we make gets better and better. But when, when, when I make the booklet, the, the intention isn't to reinvent the wheel for the following year. It's to make something that we think will you know, stand against the test of time. And the amendments that we make to this booklet will be taking feedback from teachers who tell us this worked for, well for this reason, this didn't work so well for this reason. Um, I didn't teach spit my lesson because I felt like it was too difficult or it was too detached from the previous content that was in this um, unit of work. So the booklets that I've designed with um, United Learning and that I've made in the past have always been thinking, I want this to be used to be used with my year nine class, my year 10 class, with my year sevens three years later. Um, that's flossy behind it. So initially it looks like a lot of work and it is a lot of work. And it is not perfect. You know, I'm expecting this to go up and to get a lot of um, feedback. Um, but, I, <laughs> but I think I think it's important to cut yourself a bit of slack as well. You know, the reason why I make these resources, the, the single reason why is because I, I went to KSA. I saw the resources that they were making. I felt like what I was producing wasn't very good or what I was using wasn't very good. So I wanted to produce them, which is better. So... I wanted the kids that I teach to feel more successful, but to be successful in a way that they remember what's been taught years down the line. So the reason why I make these booklets is generally because I want to give the kids the best resource that I can. Now, this is not the best resource in the world. It is definitely not perfect. There's room for improvement. But I think it's much better than the stuff that I've seen online. There are some great websites that I take stuff from to use, um, like Don Stewart's website is extraordinary. A lot of his stuff that he makes inspires what I make, and I include some of his stuff in my resources and give um, reference to that so the kids can obviously go and do some more stuff on his website. But this is something that I planned. 
I taught my year 11s. I taught my year 9s as well. Um, but because, but my year 9s had an incredibly sound understanding of this topic that they won't actually need to be retaught this later on in year 11, which is so, like, it gives you so much relief because then in year 11 you can really focus on getting the kids to fine tune their understanding in areas that they're weak in to prepare them for their exam yes. rather than teach them a brand new topic that they've probably learned before but didn't learn it well enough, therefore they're relearning it again. And, you know, if I'm a child that is relearning stuff every single year and every single year I feel like I'm learning it for the first time, that's not a good thing for that child. That child is thinking, well, I learned this last year. Why on earth do I not remember it? Like, why on earth is this so different to the way I learned it last year? It's frustrating for a child. And that child loses their confidence, loses their like joy of learning. So I feel like these booklets cater for teaching it well the first time round. And that's really important. And that's kind of the stuff I learned from Engelman's work is that how do you teach something well enough the first time round that the learning process happens well enough, but the testing process still continues because that's got to continue because that's the only way the kids remember what's been taught initially. But if if they've been taught really badly the same topic every year for four years, my year lovers were really annoyed when they got this booklet. You know, they they don't. I expect them to be like, "Oh, Miss Misby is incredible. She made me a booklet." <laughs> um, like, oh my god, what is this ridiculous booklet? Sixty pages long. There's all this mouse. Like, oh, I hate algebra. I, I mean, hate this stuff. That that leads me to to the other question. So, am I right in saying the pupils get? the same booklet that, that, that you've got that I'm looking at here that you, you've got in front of you. So it's, it's aimed at for the pupils as well as the teacher. Is that right? Yeah. So the stuff here, um, I give it to the kids because there are some children that will want to take this booklet home and redo the question they did in class mm. or they'll want to go through the example. So they had a copy which they circled and they, you know, noted on and they did whatever they want to want to, if they wanted to highlight, if they wanted to write, you know, they put a star next to what they didn't understand. So the kids were taking a bit more ownership of their learning. And I think that's really important because I've given them the, the tool that they need to use the tool. Obviously, they'll use the tool with me. But a lot of the kids, I remember, said, like, at the end, like, after I gave them the first booklet I taught them with, they're like, can we keep this booklet? Mm-hmm. Like, can we have to give it back to you? I'm like, no, of course, you can keep it. And, you know, on results, on like, not results, on like, on exam day, there were kids standing there with their booklets. <laughs> flicking, you know, and that speaks volumes that something has been made that feels that they can get value from it, even though they've not used it for like two, three weeks. And, um, and, and this would, this would replace a textbook, would that be right? There would be no additional textbook. It would be the work for this unit will be done from this booklet. But the, a lot of the questions, the types, the um, inspiration or the kind of the sequence of questions that I design come, like, are inspired from a multiple textbooks. Like, I literally at home have two bookshelves of textbooks, which I dibble dabble um, into every now and then. So, like, I've got textbooks, like David Rayner's textbooks, I've got essential textbooks. I've got textbooks from Singapore, from Pakistan, from China. You know, I've got a million textbooks that I look at to help me understand how to design my own textbook. But what I want to add as a disclaimer here is that I'm not saying every math teacher in the world should start making their own textbook. This is something that I do that I really thoroughly enjoy. And now my job is to do it on math for many, many teachers. This is not an advocation, say, go and make a 60-page textbook because, you know, that is also 
like unreasonable um you know part of teaching and i love teaching and i intend on going back to teaching someday it is i got to a point that i became really passionate and obsessed with making resources that i didn't want to teach without making my resources so that's quite stubborn behavior um because actually i worked in a school where i was making booklets for all my year groups and that became unsustainable yes um i didn't want to stop doing that but i but i barry recognized barry smith recognized that so you need to stop like make some textbooks don't make some textbooks for others but the text that you make now can be reused for next year like what happens this year will be different to what happens next year because this is the first year of the turnaround um so in my year 11 this i didn't make them brand new textbooks like the one that will be shared um because it became unsustainable and it was more important to give them resources that were already made that were good enough and were also like were excellent Corbett Maths resources were excellent in helping the kids learn what I wanted them to learn so I had to shift to find resources that are really good that you can use with your 11s because it's not sustainable I, I was tired in that year and you know Barry told me many times stop making don't make this textbook there's, there's just no need for it just don't do it <laughs> it finds stuff that's available that is good enough but um and now I have a job where I can do it. <laughs> and uh, before we dive into the actual kind of contents of this book, but just a practical question, Naveen. If the kids are getting copies of this, how do you stop them either in lesson or prior to the lesson kind of kind of jumping ahead? I mean, I'm thinking particularly first in lesson. I imagine that having read the booklet, that there's a very kind of careful sequence to this, very careful wording, very careful kind of drawing their attention to one specific thing at a time. Is it just the case of the kids have the booklets closed whenever you're doing some kind of explicit instruction at the, at the start so you know that they're focused on something and then you tell them to open the booklets? Is, is that how it works on a practical level in lessons? So within my lesson, I would be at the front with a visualizer, the kids, I'll be, so the kids would see me, I would see them, and um, I would be like, right, open your exercise book, and open to page 15, um, and we're staying on page 15, but right now you're tracking me, and they'll all be tracking me, and they wouldn't be using the textbook, unless they say, okay, right, go to page 15, line 21, we're starting from there. I'm going to read through this example, because we've done this example before, but I want you to be able to articulate the wording. So the wording in this booklet was the same wording I wanted the kids to say to me back. So if I would say, what's the first step? And the first step in the booklet would be, um, you know, for example, I, I'm not really sure I just put this in a way. For example, like, um, uh, let's start again. Let's go to, if I just pick an example from the book. If I yeah. go have, you to, got, have you got the booklet in front yeah, of you? Yeah, it's in front of me. So yeah, example, well, tell, like, tell, tell um, me that we can play along at home here. So tell us, tell us, the, page, <laughs> tell us the page to go to. So example, like page three, example one, the oh. wording is that I would want the kids to use the same wording. For example, like A plus Y is equal to X. Make Y the subject. So right, A needs to be eliminated, A has to be added to Y. Subtract A on both sides of the equation. And then it shows the working as subtracting A on both sides. And can I Why just is ask, subject of the equation? Sorry to interrupt, Naveen, but you, when you use the phrase the kids are tracking you, can you just explain what you what you mean by that? Oh yes, sorry. Um so um, at Charter and at Michaela we use the term slant, which comes from Doug Lamov's Teacher Champion um book, which is incredible about classroom management and strategies for teachers to like just be fantastic teachers in the classroom. And um, the T means for track. Track teacher means when the kids are slanting, they're sitting up, they're listening, they're answering questions, they're nodding, and their arms are folded. But T means that their eyes are on the teacher. So um, let's say I'm talking 
I was like, right, can we all track Ruben, please? Ruben's making a really good point. So the kids, they would look at Ruben. Um, or they're like, okay, right, eyes back on me, tracking me. So the eyes would come back on me. So if they're doing some work, I say, right, tracking me in three, se- in three seconds, three, two, one. The kids would put the stuff down and just slant, cross the arms. They would track me. Um, that's just like an engaged, like, um, I guess, um, classroom management tool to get kids to be attentive obviously they may not be attentive they may be looking at the listening but they may not be listening but um that's Mm -hmm. where i ask questions to make them listen got it fantastic and again just whilst whilst we're on page three page three is a good one so if listeners are playing along at home get along to page three that's where all the action's happening here now the first thing to notice is on the left hand side of each page you've got the numbers and i assume they're line numbers and is that so you can say to kids go to line three go to line 10 go it just just makes it a more efficient process to make sure everybody's at the same point is that right yes exactly fantastic um now the other thing is and again if we if we look at page three here um, I see if we look at lines one to six, we've essentially got kind of a script to kind of introduce the next example. Practically speaking, in the lesson, Naveen, are you are you essentially reading this script out? Would, would that be right? Um, it depends. So I guess either I would get them like rulers of line one, please. We're going to read this out to you. You're tracking the booklet. So when I'm reading you are listening and you're watching the booklet, which I have done. And people mm. will be surprised to hear that I've done that with year 11. Um, I think it's because I wanted the kids to engage with the booklet. So they realized there's so much in this booklet for me to use it. If kids don't see a teacher using a booklet that they have made, then why should the kids use the same booklet? Yes. I think that's really, really important. So by reading through the booklet with them, going through the examples in the booklet on the whiteboard, the kids could see, well, Mr. Wiz is using this booklet, so obviously it's important because I'm learning from this booklet. Um, and what's nice about this is that um, the kids don't have to rewrite all the worked examples in their books. So I see that happening in lessons. And I understand why that happens, but I don't want that time to be spent copying things from a board. So that's why I gave them the booklet because they could just... The examples that I use in class are same. The textbooks, if they were at home, wanted to revise. They'd be like, oh, Mrs. You went through examples one to six. They're in my textbook on page three. Yes. Fantastic. So I would read through them. And I, and I would, for example, like on line eight, where I go through the steps of what they've got to do, I would ask, right, Ruben, what's the first step? Right, like Emily, what's the second step? Right, Sonny, what's the third step? So the kids would be saying what the steps are. And the- then I would... Yeah, and the steps wouldn't change, so I'd ask them the same steps the following day. I was like, right, so we to recap this. What's the first step? What's the second step? What's the third step? And ask those kids. And they could be included in a, in a quiz, presumably, at some point as well, because, the, again, it's, it's, it's this kind of recall of, of information that, that, that you can do with, the, with this because these steps aren't changing, because it's – this is the other thing that I, I think I like about this. It's – it's i mean for want of a better better term it's scripted this isn't it naveen like those lines one to six and again for the benefit of people who are listening who don't have access to this i'll just just give you a flavor of this so line one on page three it starts now we know the inverse of each operation let's look at a few examples where we want to change the subject of an equation we want to make y the subject of the equation so i want my equation to look like this now that's a script that either you're reading out or the kids are reading out and am i right in saying naveen that this this almost goes back to the lesson that you, you spoke about that you learned from from Bruno um, at King Solomon. The idea of Bruno talking about writing um, the the little uh, not post-it notes, but the the flashcards, so that the teacher had almost 
already written down what they were going to say so they've thought about it and checked it made sense is, is that the idea behind this that you've done your thinking of what you're going to say before the lesson so you've been really careful over your words really careful over your terminology and now you've done that thinking you're going to stick to it and literally just read the, this out is, is that right yeah and the reason why is because upon reflection for my first year of teaching I had very, I had really big misconceptions around what direct instruction and instruction looked like. And I thought it was just two to the front, talking loads, and that's not useful. <laughs> that, and that's that's actually a really common misconception that teachers have. And when I used Engelman's textbook series, and, and I when I engaged with looking at textbooks and watching great teachers teach, one thing I, I realized is that everything that the teacher said was meaningful. It had impact. It was important and when children see and they recognize that what the teacher says is short and as Barry calls it precise and concise they are going to listen more because they realize what I'm saying is important it will help them to be more successful in my lessons we are all there to make children feel more successful but to actually be more successful and I realized that I was very I was verbose you know I spoke far too much in my lessons as this podcast is evident to this <laughs> you know, we're I, both guilty of that Naveen so don't worry about that in my first year of Michaela I remember like watching Danny and Danny would say certain phrases consistently because actually the more you vary what you're saying the more confused the kids get mm. so for example in this case um uh circle the subject you, you want to isolate that's on line eight on page three right so i would not change that i would say from lesson one to lesson you know 14 what's the first step i circle the subject that you want to isolate so the kids know there are a bunch of letters in front of me with an equal sign and operations in between. I need to focus my attention on what's the thing that has to um, be the subject. That's a really small, simple thing that I think experts take for granted. That I take that for granted. Actually looking at an equation and trying to find the letter that you're trying to get on its own is actually quite hard for a child yes, because yes. they're letters. There's just so many of them. Um, so by saying that on a daily basis, children would start doing that and then I'd ask them right so here's an example of um, and like an equation someone someone circled something now why is th there's a mistake here what's the mistake and someone like you know Emily would say uh, Mr. Z the question says make y the subject and you've circled x yes so then you can have those conversations right because you've given kids the language that they need to articulate what's wrong so that's really nice because actually when kids can articulate where they're confused or they can articulate how they've understood something to be the case that is essentially learning and that's kind of like the ideal learning and you know a mass a children a child who's successful in a subject is able to articulate their understanding or they're able to articulate their lack of understanding to their teacher who can then help them now the way to make that possible is to give kids the language they need to do that and I feel like sitting down and writing down what you're going to say and thinking about it um, is really useful for the child but also for you and it also made me realize that kids walked away less confused mm. kids learned what I was saying and what I was doing on the first time round. so I would want I want the highest portion of children in my lesson to understand what I'm saying on the first attempt. That for me is like the goal of teaching. That is really, really 
good to get to that point. But this booklet, it looks like a lot of work, but actually it was the thinking that took the time. Mm. It was sitting down and thinking, how do I say this in a misconception-proof way? How do I say this? Sorry, go on. No, no, I, I was going to ask, and this, again, I don't know what your, your, your take on this this will be, Naveen, but I mean, I'm looking at page three and I'm thinking, I, I, I've not seen anything like this before. I've not seen anything where you've essentially got a, a script that, that you're going to follow, but crucially, the kids have got access to that script as well. And And one thing... I don't know if this is a concern, but I'm, I'm just interested in, in your take on it. I mean, we're, we're both fans of, of cognitive load theory. We've, we've both done a good deal of, re- of reading on that. It's been a recurring theme on this podcast. Is there a danger that when kids have kind of got these words in front of them and they're hearing either you saying them or another child saying them, that we've got example of the redundancy effect there, that we, we've got we've got difficulty that kids don't know whether they should be kind of reading it at their own pace or listening to the words that, that are coming in and is is there not a uh, would it would it not be better to have this so the kids don't see it you essentially read it out first say say the script or or one child says the script but the kids are just focusing on listening to that and then they have access to 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 the kind of script to to almost get a second chance to to read through it and check or is 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 that not a concern or have I, or have i missed the kind of power of of the tracking and of the kind of following line by line. I don't know if any of that makes sense or not. No, it's a it's a really really good question. Um, one that stumped me a little bit. I think I have the script for them in front of them because when I'm talking, I'm going through an example and they're a little bit lost. Yes. They have something to go to. Yes. To get back on track. So that's kind of the purpose that it serves. But you no, know, it's a perfectly valid point that actually. I mean, like, you could say as criticism that they're basically making noise. I'm making a noise. They're copying that noise, <laughs> right? Um, that that is a perfectly, perfectly valid criticism of this. But it's in the pedagogy and me being in front of them, where I make the words meaningful. Like yes. by me showing them an example, I'm gonna circle the subject that we want to isolate. So me visually circling, make why the subject. I'm gonna circle the why. So they they see that the script that I'm the language that I'm using is what I'm essentially doing. I think when you have expert induced blindness, and I have this, I think I think math teachers who are really good at their subject they become actually because they're good at maths. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this all the time, is that I forget how some things are really hard for kids to do, mm. and that. By doing certain things, by me sharing my inner dialogue, the stuff that I'm doing in my head, making that explicit makes the kids more successful. And I think there's a bit of a disservice when you don't narrate what you do in mathematics Mm. because then the kids don't learn the expert level of thinking that you do. And the only way that that I got to that was because somebody told me you circle the term that you want to isolate. You know, my just told me that and now I do it. No, I do it. No, I want all my kids to do it. And, you know, I want those kids to feel successful. So I think it's a disservice to sometimes hold back on it. But the point they made about redundancy, yes, it makes complete sense. Um, but it boils down to, like, me giving them the script, like, right, I'm going to read it out, I'm going to go through it, and we're done. Then, yes, you'd have a point. But yes. the pedagogy, me going through it, me showing them the live example. And for example, there are many times in this booklet that I would go through an example that we've done before, I wouldn't say a word. 
I'd be like, right, you know, um, Emily, you are going to narrate what I'm doing for me because you're really good at it and uh, everybody else can nice. learn from you. So I would just do an example. I'm not saying anything. She's like, right, so Miss Rizvi is circling what we're going to isolate. She's identifying what needs to be eliminated. She inverts the operation and applies to both sides. Now, I double check that um, Y is a subject. Yes, Y is equal to. It is a subject. Like, how great is that for a visitor who came? Like, I remember visitors coming to, to my classroom and, and all the classrooms that they saw with Barry. Barry, he didn't have to. You just take a visitor around and you, you would see the visitor just completely jaw on the floor thinking, did this child in year 11, who's not really, who's struggled over the last few years to be successful in maths, has told the teacher and the entire class what to do from the start to the end of a mathematical um, you know, rearrangement? Mm. That is really, really impressive. The script that I use makes me more successful in teaching to make the kids more successful in their learning. That's the reason why I write a script. It's not because I like the sound of my own voice. It's not because <laughs> I think I know better. It's because I feel like this will make the kids more successful. That's um, that's again, Naveen. I, I can't tell you how how interesting how interesting this is. The the other thing I just wanted to pick up again. Um, okay, we we could just talk for hours just on page three here. The um, the thing that struck me as well about the kind of contents page, which is page one, is there are I think I'm right in saying that there are six kind of six sections, for want of a better phrase, dedicated to one step rearranging. You've got one step rearranging. You've got one step rearranging with powers and roots, then with groups, groups and roots. Then we take a break to do some two step uh, rearranging. Then we come back with one step rearranging with fractions and then one step rearranging with groups in the denominator. Now. That's a fascinating way of, of breaking um, a, a, a what potentially could be seen as a single concept, the idea of one step rearranging, actually into six. And within each of those uh, six things, it's not just a case of doing one example. There's flipping loads of examples and varied. So, again, I just for the benefit of people listening to this, I just want to read out the uh, the examples from that first one step equation. And again, when I when I think about the examples that I would have given my students, they would well, they wouldn't have been like this. And I think and that's a bad thing for me, um, as in the way I used to do it. I think these are far, far better. And I'll perhaps pause on each on, on each one and just just share a few comments. And again, and feel free to to chip in, Naveen. So the first one is make Y the subject. And the um, the formula is A plus Y equals X. So I like the fact um Again, were letters straight away, no messing around there. A relatively kind of straight, straightforward example. But then the next one I think is powerful because example two is make Y the subject and it's X equals Y minus A. Now we've got the same letters involved, but straight away you have done something that I am bad at doing. And that is the letter that we're making the subject is now on the right hand side of the equation. So kids are confronted with that early door. So that does that becomes familiar. That's no longer an unfamiliar thing to have that that subject there it's not always the case that the subject is on the left hand side so i think i think that's important and then as we continue we get we same three letters always x always y always a so we get x equals y over a and then we get x equals y a again notice the y is on the right hand side or the left hand side and then it goes more complicated um, as we go through the examples culminating and i love this 
Again, make y the subject, and this time we've got y plus m equals 3 plus x squared. So we're bringing a power into play, again, early doors. So it becomes familiar to kids, and then we've got a mini quiz. So again, Naveen, and I don't know if, if there even is a question in here, but like, how do you come up with those examples? What What's the kind of thought process behind that sequencing of questions? Because I just found it absolutely fascinating. So... Before I even write the examples, I write the practice exercises that are in each ah. um, separate thing. And the reason why I do that is because I want to find the simplest application of what it takes to do a one-step rearrangement um, and what is the most complex application of that rearrangement. And I will look through different textbooks, look online, look at like problems with UKMT, and I will I'll take those examples and then I'll make I'll make more of those questions and. What's most important is that I will make lots of questions for the harder examples because it's a common tendency to over-practice on the easy stuff mm. but to under-practice on the hard stuff. And the easy stuff, kids, because it's simple and it's easy, it's easy to do and it doesn't require that much instruction, but it's the harder stuff that needs more instruction and more guidance and more emphasis and clearer instruction. And only if you find those hard problems and that you resource them and make them or that you overpopulate the resources on the harder end of the spectrum, that's where the kids will get to a kind of an expertise level where they will be able to do easy questions and the hard questions. I want all the pupils in my class, the weakest and the most able. And I want, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make the weakest struggle because they need to do enough practice to make them confident enough to transition to the harder examples, but they must transition to the harder examples. They need that time with me to get them to a point where they can do them independently. I want all the children that are the weakest and the most strong and the strongest to do all these questions with enough practice where they can do it without making a mistake. And when I find, when I've done the practice exercises for that, I then think, okay, right, what are the examples that communicate once it rearrangement in its most explicit form? So with example one that I use on page three, I deliberately made Y the second term on the left-hand mm. side, deliberately, because I want them to think, oh, there's an add sign in front of the Y, therefore I'm, a, sorry, um, Y subject, I've deliberately made it the second term, so the second term, because then they have to think, look at A, which is the first, and think, right, what sides are in yes. front of A? So I said them, right, A plus Y is equal to X. I'm going to circle, so I don't want to isolate. So I'm going to circle the add Y. Now, I need to isolate, I need to remove, I need to identify A to be eliminated. Now, A has a secret sign in front of it. It's positive. I'm going to draw that positive sign. There, I'm going to subtract A on both sides. So that communicated that it's okay that the subject is not the first Yes. on the left side and then for the second example I put the subject on the right hand side because that is equally as possible yes. and then now I made the A negative now interestingly this boils down subject knowledge an example I wouldn't include at this stage is where the subject um, is negative right because you know, times by negative one on both sides and that becomes a two-sided a two-sided a two-sided sorry a two-sided rearrangement and that's not the focus here. Mm. Focus here is I'm only making examples that focus on what I want the children to do. And then, and I've, you know, 
And the examples that I choose, they are powerful. And when you're powerful, I mean, they communicate the concept in its most explicit way. The kids are explicitly knowing what to do at each stage. They're being forced to think about it. So by, in the first example, by, by being the second term, they have to identify that A is the first term and therefore it's got a secret plus sign. So that's a lot of thinking that's happening. Um, so I'm thinking, what are all the errors the kids can potentially make? Mm. What are all the mistakes that they are going to make? Now, what are the examples that prevent them from making these mistakes? What are the examples where I can communicate the potential mistakes that the kids could make? It's fascinating, that. The, the, the fact that you write the exercises first and then use that to inform the examples. And, and the other thing I find fascinating, Naveen, about this is that by taking something that seems like a, a relatively straightforward idea, a one-step rearrangement, you have no brackets in here, there's no roots in here or anything like that. And yet when I kind of scroll down to page six and I look at the practice exercises for this particular uh, section of, of the book, like there's things that I would never have asked the kids in here. So again, I'll just pick a few out at random. You've got ABC equals X over four to make X the subject. It's still a one step. It's still a one step rearrangement, but it looks different. It looks weird, but it only looks different and weird if your kids are just used to the familiar kind of bog standard ones that I've been giving kids giving kids for years. I particularly love this one as well in um, in the uh, question two of the, the practice exercises when you get to part H and it's make Y the subject and it's 3a squared plus x plus m equals y it's almost kind of a non-example the fact that actually y is already the subject there so kids are having to be really on their toes and thinking particularly hard about this and i think that's one big thing i've always taken away from when i've, I've watched you speak um, and this is something i want to dig into when you return to return to the podcast is taking a relatively on the surface narrow topic or concept and going into great, great depth and, and tackling unfamiliar things so that they become familiar. Is that something you're kind of conscious of doing, Naveen? Yeah, absolutely. With the one that you've picked up with H, um, that's an example that I should have included in the examples. Um, I didn't write it in the book, but I did go through them at the end. Sometimes it's okay if the subject is already made the subject. I want you to be able to say that. So I remember I told the kids, you know, when they're doing a question two by themselves, like, I want you to raise your hand when you identify um, a a a an arrangement which has already got the subject that's intended. Mm. And I remember the kids were like, they were on fire. They were like, they were, they were determined <laughs> to be the first person to tell me which one it was. And um, I remember one of the it was um, a lovely chap in my class, and he was like question h mr Rizvi. and he because because he just skimmed through it but um yeah he got a demerit because like you to make you ruin the fun for everybody else <laughs> <laughs> i was like, I'm joking not demerit but next time just don't do that and he was like no i understand but um yeah it's it's really important to do to because the only way that you can find those powerful examples is by knowing what it what questions there are yes there's some for, for this small section of what you are teaching um and then with those powerful examples, with the mini quiz, they just, they are identical in the structure of what they do, but visually they look different. Um, and I, I want the kids to have a chance to practice each example. But the fact that the mini quiz has questions that are parallel to the examples that the kids are seeing mm. also means that I'm giving them a fair chance. You know, 
I've modeled how to do a certain example for them. Now they're going to try one too, kind of like with the exact teacher people example pairs that you do, which is the exact same thing. Um, so, but that that mini quiz bit is so important because it's the testing process again that's getting me to see how much the kids have understood from what I've taught, but also allows the kids to know what they are what they've learned, what they're struggling with. So I remember seeing kids like circling question E, thinking I found question E a bit difficult because they have to write, so on page five, line seven on question E, they have to divide an expression by the coefficient of B. Mm. So um, I remember when I went through that example, I was like, we draw a line from the start of the expression all the way to the end. Mm. Um, I was like, and also it has to be a horizontal line. I don't want this kind of slanty business. Like don't any of that because it makes it because it, it gives the impression that you've only put the second term over the um, d- um above the denominator. Don't do that, please don't do that. I'll weep, I'll weep, and rem- <laughs> I remember saying to the kids, and they were just like, "Wow, she's serious." <laughs> I, I just one final kind of practical question on this, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap things up for part one, Naveen. But I'm gonna set listeners a challenge. But final question, final question, I just want to ask you, just on a practical level, um, are kids allowed to make annotations in their in their textbooks as they go? If they if they think of something that would help them remember, or they want to write something down, are they allowed to, or do these textbooks stay exactly as they are? So great question. With my year 11s. Yes, they're allowed to annotate them because they took them home. Um, I guess with my young classes, seven, eight, and nine, um, just because situation of the school, mm. um, I and budget. <laughs> um, of course. Uh, the booklets were printed out and on the desk at all times, um, and they would the kids wouldn't take them home. But with year eleven, I because the resource that I was making for year eleven weren't going to necessarily be used because they were structured in a way that I knew the fact that the kids didn't know that much from previous years so I had to add a lot of things and structure it in a way that I normally wouldn't because there were so many pockets of lack of knowledge it wasn't the kids fault you know it just was the situation as it was but um, in an ideal world I would have these booklets where the kids would have them in their work packs and take them home but in practical sense and this was also the same case with Michaela is that the textbooks that the kids would use would be on the desk and they would annotate them um, yeah. but I guess when they get older then I would like that if they did got it that makes perfect sense well Naveen here we go so we've re- we've reached the end of part one of the interview first off you're coming back aren't you that's right <laughs> you'll have me sure you're, you're now contractually obliged to it to return to this podcast because i'm lo- and this this exact same thing happened when i interviewed chris bolton and the exact same thing happened when i interviewed danny quinn that I've, I've got absolutely nowhere near through the questions i wanted to ask you so Coming up, the kind of things that you need to address in part two is we've kind of skirted around the the kind of concept of atomization, but I want to I want to dig deeper into it. I want to dig deep into how you break down complex topics, how you make the decisions of how far to break it down. What I also then am interested in is once a topic's been broken down, even like this in this booklet where we've got something like changing the subject of a formula, but particularly for something complex like simultaneous equations, following the process of atomization how on earth do you bring it all back together are all topics in math suitable for atomization and then a big one for me Naveen that I'd, I'd love you to answer for me next time is we've done this process of atomization and this is something that on Twitter there's a lot of kickback to this because 
how do we then move kids onto the process of being problem solvers, being critical thinkers, creative mathematicians, and so on? Is, is there a natural transition from atomization to then being able to think a bit outside the box and so on and so forth? So we've got all those things to, to address. But also, I'm going to put this booklet up um, in the show notes, as you, if you've kindly allowed me to do. And what I'm going to invite listeners to do is to have a look through this booklet, relate it to the conversation uh, that we've had so far, and then have have listeners, have you got any questions about this booklet for Naveen? What are the things that you want um, you want to know? Is it about how it's used? Is it about the kids' responses? Is it about certain decisions um, that have been made within the booklet and um, certain ways of explaining things? What, what do you what what do you want me to ask Naveen? And it's up there, and then we can have a really 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 interesting um, conversation. And oh God, and the other thing, of course, we haven't even touched Engelman. Your favourite, Naveen. Engelman's a babe. Engelman's a babe. I don't know how we've got through this podcast with that, so we've got to address that in in part two as well. But for now, Naveen, listen, I have had an absolute ball speaking to you today. Um, I've absolutely loved just going deep. It's it's like we've kind of taken the lesson from your booklet. We've taken a small area and we've gone deep into it, this idea of sequencing, this idea of scripting and so on and so forth. And I also love talking about the, um, the kind of sharing of resources the social media aspect and the testing as well it's my head is absolutely spinning i'm gonna to have to think very hard about what my takeaways are going to be on this but i know this is going to be an episode that's going to resonate really 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 strongly with, with the listeners so naveen thank you so much for giving up your time today i cannot wait for you to return to the, this podcast and i hope you found it an enjoyable experience thank you craig you're doing such amazing work i've learned so much from all the podcasts that i actually my i've now made it into a thing at home my dad was like what's this like mr barton math podcast that you're constantly <laughs> playing um so no thank you and i really appreciate the opportunity to be up beyond here with you so there you have it there was part one of my interview with Naveen Rizvi. I really hope you liked that one and got as much out of it as I did. I flipping loved talking to Naveen. As I say, any time I've heard Naveen talk, I've found it both fascinating and also challenging because it, it almost takes explicit instruction or direct instruction to the extreme. And as I say, if you haven't had a chance yet to look at the booklet, then it's fascinating. I'm, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that as we get through these takeaways. But there's three things I want to talk about um, first in regard to, to the interview. The first is, and, and I didn't plan for us to talk about this, but this was um, about sharing resources and, and social media um, in general. Um, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about since I recorded the conversation with Naveen, because I've, I've actually done something that I never thought I'd do. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But um, I, I love sharing resources. It's something I've always done since I started um, in teaching. I remember I put my first resource up on TES as, as an NQT kind of 14 years ago. And I'll be honest with you, there's, there's a bit of a buzz you get when people download it and people like it and say nice things and so on and so forth. But particularly um, since my book's come out and particularly in the last kind of couple of months when there's, I won't say a backlash, but there's been quite a few teachers rightly questioning some of the things that I say in there and some of the practices that I, um, I, I suggest and, and say have worked for me. Um, And so therefore, every time I put a resource up now, particularly if it's one of my variation theory kind of sequences of practice questions, um, as well as kind of likes and stuff, which are always nice and people, you know, saying thank you for sharing and so on and so forth. 
I also come in for a fair bit of criticism, but I think that there's kind of two types of criticism. Now, th this may surprise some listeners, but um, people who follow me on Twitter will know that in the past I've had a few run-ins with Danny Brown. Now, Danny's gone a bit quiet on Twitter of, of late, and it's a real shame because I used to enjoy those exchanges. Because what was what was good, what what is good about Danny is that he doesn't just say that's a load of crap. <laughs> he says that's a load of crap because of this. I would have done this. And therefore, you've got something to work with. Do you know what I mean? It becomes a more meaningful conversation, a meaningful dialogue. And look, me and Danny, and there's there's a few others there, we're never going to agree on, on the intelligent sequences of questions are, are, are a good thing. We're never going to see to our eye to eye on that. But at least we can engage in it because Danny's offering an alternative. And I like that. Now, I, I won't lie to you. Sometimes it can be quite exhausting defending absolutely everything. And at some points I've said, I've, I've said, look, I'm not saying everybody should use this. I'm just saying, here's something I've built. And if you find it useful, feel free to use it. If you haven't, just ignore it. But I quite like that dialogue. It challenges me. It makes me think harder about what I'm doing. And, and since kind of variation theory the website, um, since it, I kind of launched it, I've changed loads of things about it because of the criticisms that I've had, because people have told me what they were confused about, what doesn't work, and it's really helped me clarify my thoughts. So that's been a positive. But on the flip side, there are also people who just, they just pounce on everything people say that they disagree with, and yet don't offer anything constructive in return. It's just, this is crap. This is horrendous. Or we've been doing this for 40 years. This is nothing new. This is a load of rubbish. And I just think, what? all right, brilliant. Well, what do you want, a medal? So I, the first thing I've started doing, and I've never done this before, is I've, I've started using mute on Twitter. Now, mute is a wonderful function. You can mute a conversation. And that is, if you're tagged into a conversation and, and there's loads of replies and you think, actually, I'm a bit bored of this. It's not directly relevant. You can just um, kind of right, uh, click on the top right-hand corner of the little drop-down arrow um, of any message. And from the options, select mute conversation. And that means you won't get notified every time this conversation updates. So I've been doing that for a while but I've done my first ever mute of a person and I'm not going to mention who this is but they, they pushed me to the limit it was just a couple of days ago they said something quite nasty and I just thought no I've had enough of this if you block them then it all kicks off because they know they're blocked then and then I've, I've seen people um, who've blocked other people and then that person uses that as fuel to kind of stir up a bit of trouble and so on and so forth whereas mute the beauty of mute is they don't have a flipping clue you've muted them and yet you no longer have to put up with their drivel that they're saying to you. So now I can happily post things and if people criticize it um, but they offer me something in return, an alternative, then brilliant. But if they're just slagging it off, they're getting a mute. And it's, it's been a life changer for me. But just to go back to what me and Naveen were saying, um, sharing resources is a brilliant thing. I've seen it work so well on Twitter. I, I mentioned Chris McGrain. He's great at this. He puts a resource up and he gets people from all different sides of the kind of spectrum of, uh, you know, direct instruction right through to inquiry, offering constructive criticism, suggestions and so on. And he takes it all on board and works with it. And what comes out when he then kind of shows the next iteration of the resource is it's a far better resource. And that works so, so, so well. Um, I probably don't have as strong a character, if I'm honest, as Chris. I, I, I take criticism quite badly. It's something I need to work on, I need to address. But what I, what I think I'd say is if you are creating a resource and you want it to get better, then share it on social media. 
But if people are saying things that aren't helpful to you, try to block it out. And if you can't block it out kind of mentally, block it out physically with a cheeky little mute on on on, uh, on Twitter. Because sharing resources is brilliant. The math community as a whole, 99% of them are absolutely amazing. They're so grateful when people share resources and they're also willing to offer their opinion um, in a really constructive way. But that 1% can really mess things up for everybody else. So my takeaway from that is share things if you, if you want to kind of put it out there, look to improve, but don't be afraid to mute. All right, second takeaway from Naveen's, uh, from Naveen's conversation, testing. Now, I'm just going to reread these three quotes that come from the, the, the blog that Naveen shared, and there's a link to the blog in the show notes. So here we go. Here's quote number one. The testing process was about 75% of the teaching process. Now, I'll just pause there because that's interesting. Because when I put uh, my book out, uh, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, and I spoke about low-stakes quizzes, um, a lot of the kind of feedback I got from that is, I don't have time to do the quizzes because I've got to do the teaching. I've got to teach new content. And my point there was, the more you quiz, the less time you're going to need to spend going back over stuff that you've already taught. So you're actually going to get through more content. And it's again, it's about the separating testing from learning. Testing isn't just a neutral form of assessment. Testing is a way to help students retain things, help students remember things, help students learn things. So the testing process was about 75% of the teaching process. Uh, again, just something, it sounds high, but I don't know. So that, that's, the first, that's the first quote. The second one, <laughs> the learning for pupils starts once they are tested. Now, again, that's interesting. I used to think that kids start learning as soon as I'm talking to them. As soon as I'm explaining things, that's when learning's kicking in. But for Naveen, it only starts once they are tested because they start to put things together. They start to see for themselves whether they've understood something, whether they can recreate it, whether they can answer a similar question, when they can apply it to a different context. The learning for pupils starts once they are tested. And finally, and I love this one, listening isn't necessarily evidence that the kids have learned anything but pupils listening to the teacher gives the impression that they are learning. Now, again, it goes back to um, Rob Coe's kind of pure, poor, sorry, poor proxies for learning, where Rob Coe talks about engagement being a poor proxy for learning. We can't observe learning, learning's, learning's invisible. We just look for signs that we hope indicate learning's happening. And pupil engagement, people chatting away and so on, looking animated. Oh, that must be because they're, that must mean that they're learning. And Rob argues that no, it doesn't. But Naveen's kind of taken it to another extreme here. So students sat there listening to the teacher gives the impression that they're learning but it doesn't necessarily mean learning's happening. It only happens once they're tested. And this made me think about my silent teacher approach, because for me, that's kind of like stage one of when students start to take things in. But I guess I only know whether that's happened or not when we get to the your turn part, stage three, and the show call part, because that's when students are asked to actually do something for themselves. And that's when they and me start to see whether any learning has taken place. So again, perhaps listening in silence is also a poor proxy for learning. <laughs> but then, just when I was preparing this interview, I was just on Twitter last night and I came across one of Mark McCourt's tweets. And Mark's going to come back on the show when, he, when his book on mastery comes out. And Mark said this, testing is no indication at all of learning. I'll just say that again. Testing is no indication at all of learning. Learning takes place over time. The testing here is merely to indicate pupils are gaining proficiency slash can perform. 
Now, I need to dig into more of what Mark means by that, because that seems quite strong. Testing is no indication at all of learning. So again, there are different views left, right, and center on this. And but two important things that I, I kind of took away from the testing thing. The first I've already mentioned. First, not seeing testing as purely a tool of assessment is the key, and both for a teacher and for the students. If testing is all about marking for the teacher, collecting in scores, putting them on a spreadsheet, high stakes for the kids, and so on and so forth, then incentives are distorted, teachers want to do testing less, kids panic, and so on and so forth. Whereas once students start to see that testing actually is a crucial part of the learning process, then I think it becomes more effective. And secondly, and just as important, there are different forms of testing. Testing isn't always quizzes or exams. It can be the your turn part of a example problem pair. It can be the teacher questioning one-to-one, -one, a whole class, small groups. It can be the show call part of worked examples and so on and so forth. Lots of different forms of testing. But if you buy into what Naveen's saying, that testing is when the learning starts. And finally, finally, the booklet. Have you downloaded this booklet? PDF, absolutely brilliant, 63 pages. Now this is, this is what we've been waiting for on the podcast. This is a scripted lesson. It's the thing that we've been taught, hinting at when I've interviewed Danny Quinn and Greg Ashman to a lesser extent, Chris Bolton. But here it is, this is what it looks like. All the worked examples, all the dialogue the teacher's gonna say, all the dialogue that students are gonna follow. Um, and I just wanted to pick out a couple of features about this booklet um, that we, we didn't discuss in detail um, in the interview. And um, the first is if we just looked where this starts. So this is all about rearranging um, equations. And the first bit, um, if you go onto page two, and um, this is the dialogue. We will learn how to rearrange a formula so it starts with a particular unknown. This is known as changing the subject to a, of a formula. Here are some examples where A is a subject of the formula. Notice the careful use of language there, the use of unknown, the use of formula three times within two sentences. All about reinforcing this key dialogue. It's not leaving it up to chance that the teacher just says something that hopefully makes sense. It's scripting it, it's planning it out. But then look at this. Here are some examples of where A is the subject of the formula. So we start with simple ones. A equals B plus X, A equals B minus X. But bear in mind, this is this is the start of this particular learning episode. By the end of it, we have A equals the square root of B squared minus X squared. So exposing students to complex, more challenging examples early on so that they don't become weird and unfamiliar. Um, and then as we go through, we have more scripted dialogue. We then have the examples that we spoke about with Naveen. Um, and there's how many examples here? Five examples, six, sorry, six examples in this, this first bit, culminating in make Y the subject of Y plus M equals three plus X squared. Now that's just a one-step equation. You just have to subtract M or eliminate M to use Naveen's language here, but it's including these powers. It's including numbers to show students that it doesn't matter almost how complex certain aspects of this formula look like, you can still do it with this one step. But then we have a mini quiz where students are challenged, they're given six different uh, formulas and asked to make B the subject. And again, we have cubes in there, we have numbers in there, we have letters, we have fractions and so on and so forth. And then um, after one more example, we then get to practice exercises. So we have make X the subject and we have um, A to P in terms of examples there. And then we have more challenging ones, make Y the subject, we have A to L. And then we have kind of in context ones, rearrange the formula to find the circumference of a circle and then rearrange the formula V equals U plus AT to express U in terms of V and AT. So we have the kind of SUVAT ones. And then we have more questions. And then that comes 
uh, comes to the second thing. That's the culmination of that part of the learning episode. And then we have one step rearranging on powers and roots. And it starts with a recap. Six questions recapping the skills from the previous lesson. And then back into some carefully constructed dialogue. We have learned how to change the subject of a formula using the four operations. We had to perform one step and so on and so forth. Now this is shared dialogue that the kids can access, the teacher can read through. It has to be by definition planned out in advance because it's written down, it's committed to paper and so on and so forth. So the first thing is I found this fascinating to see this in action. And I know people will look at this and think that is the worst thing they've ever seen. And Naveen's opening herself up to a lot of criticism here, but she's willing to do that. And what I'd really like is for people to read this booklet and if you've got questions or concerns or things you want me to put to Naveen, then get in contact either through email, mrbartonmaths at gmail.com or via my Twitter at mrbartonmaths. And I'll put them to Naveen when she's back on the show. But I just wanted to end with this. Thinking about me now, would I have found those booklets useful? Firstly, as an NQT, I'll be honest, I think I would. Um, firstly, because I, I didn't know any better. Um, I didn't know any different, I should say. I didn't know there were other approaches. And this would have helped me see how to structure a sequence of lessons. And that is something I was crap at for many, many, many years. My planning was one-off lessons. That's what it was. And this would show me how it all fit, fitted together. It would show me the importance of the careful use of language. I've spoken about this in the podcast um, a couple of times. I'm going to reflect on it in my Alex Quigley interview, which will be coming out in a couple of episodes time, that one thing I never, ever, ever planned was the words I was going to say. I'd plan the questions I was going to give the kids first. I'd plan the resources, just get them off Tess. Later on in my career, I'd plan my worked examples that I was going to use. But I never, ever, ever planned out the words I was going to say to students. I just thought it would come naturally. So I, and I, when I look back, my words weren't good enough. I suffer from curse of knowledge. I talk too much. I, I say things 28 times instead of one time. So having this booklet would have helped that, I think. It would have made me a better teacher. It would have helped me see how to structure things and um, resource things, um, order questions and so on and so forth. Um, would I find them useful now as a, as, as a teacher, 14 years in, if somebody said, this is how you would have to teach? I don't know. I think I would find it interesting. I think I would... It would, it would, I would find it fascinating to see how my head of department or my, you know, curriculum planner had planned the lesson. But I think I'd want to question it. I think if there was something I disagreed with, I'd want to say, I don't like this bit because, and I want to do this instead. And I think I would like that freedom to be able to do that. But I think I guess I'd like to be involved in the creation process of it where I could air my views that way. But I think I'd still find them useful now. I'd still find them fascinating, far more useful than somebody saying, here's, a, here's something good on straight line graphs that I used. Here's a fancy activity that I used. This is, this is seeing th a thought process from the start of a unit to the end of a unit. So I would find that useful. And finally, just before I shut up, what about differentiation? I thought that was fascinating. There's zero differentiation in here. Every child is doing the exact same work. And I thought it was interesting when Naveen said that she knew in advance which kids were going to struggle and which kids were going to need more challenge. So could go through it at different pace and so on and so forth. And she could offer different help and support. And I found that hard, right? And you could hear that in the interview because I just thought that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You expect a child to struggle and they struggle. This is one of the arguments against um, setting. 
one of the arguments for mixed attainment classes. There's no ceiling on aspirations. Ch students are going to be challenged all the time. But Naveen was saying something slightly different for that. She was expecting students to struggle because she knew their areas of weakness from the previous lessons. She wasn't going in cold with this. She wasn't going in cold with um, changing the subject of a formula because prior to this, she'd done num um, order of operations. She'd done algebraic terminology. She knew all the building blocks weren't secure, as secure in some students as they were in others. So therefore she knew that they were gonna need some support. Whereas I think the mistake I've made in the past is whenever my scheme of work hasn't been as logically sequenced and I'm doing tree diagrams for two weeks and I'm doing a bit of fractions and I'm doing a bit of negative numbers. I'm going in cold. So I can't form accurate expectations of where my kids are going to struggle because it isn't the previous lesson where I've kind of had chance to kind of see how they cope with these building blocks, these atoms. It's two months ago, six months ago and so on and so forth. So my judgments aren't as accurate. Whereas Naveen, it's all carefully sequenced. It's all building up. So when she expects students to struggle, it's because she's damn good evidence that they've struggled in the previous lessons. So I thought that was an interesting distinction. But anyway, as I say, we didn't get chance to talk about Engelman. Naveen Flippin loves Engelman. We didn't get chance to talk about atomization. Is this the new buzzword? Is that a load of nonsense? Am I going to mess it all up like I've messed up variation theory? Quite, pro quite probably, quite probably. But we're going to dig into more of that when Naveen returns to the, to the podcast in the near future. But in the meantime, if you've got questions, then fire them in because I can't wait to have Naveen on. And I know this episode is going to be controversial and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the backlash. Anyway, I best shut up now. Um, all that remains for me to do is to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Obviously, a massive thanks to Naveen for, for coming on the show, for sharing a booklet, for putting herself out there and letting us see a different approach to teaching than we've heard about on the show. This is direct instruction to the extreme and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And thank you to you, my loyal listener, for keeping on tuning into this show. And please help spread the word. This will be, I think this will be an episode that people talk about. So if you've got somebody who want, who you think, yeah, they need to hear this. They need to be challenged. Then recommend it to them. This could be a good episode to get them into the podcast. And if they want to ask some questions, then get them involved as well. Anyway, I'm definitely going to shut up now. I've got some absolutely fascinating guests lined up, both maths and non-maths, over the coming months. But... That's it for now. You take care of yourselves. Bye for now.